0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of Failure Piece Theater, your movie podcast for discussions of cinematic history's near misses and failures. This week on the chopping block is one of the later films from the Toby Hooper oeuvre, in this case 1995's The Mangler, based on a Stephen King short story, uh, adapted by Hooper himself with uh, one of his longtime collaborators and starring the Fresh off of, or relatively fresh off the success of Silence of the Lambs, Ted Levine. Yeah. Um, this is such a weird movie. I mean, we talk about a lot of weird movies, don't, don't get me wrong, but That's what we this do. is just
1: This is a weird movie.
0: This is this is a cut above uh for what we've discussed. Because a lot of the movies we've discussed were really trying to have this kind of like mainstream appeal they were really trying to like you know get out there to the masses really you know have people love them i'm not sure this movie had that as one of its goals uh from its inception maybe uh but this uh this movie is is kind of in its own little universe and uh, i kind of love it for that i love movies that are just kind of doing its own thing uh or doing their own thing uh a lot of this and and I guess we'll get into it as we go, but a lot of this reminded me a lot of like early Peter Jackson stuff, pre Lord of the Rings, Peter Jackson. Yes. Um, it's very loose. It's, it's really bloody, like exceedingly <laughs> bloody. Um, it just, it feels evocative. A lot of what people who had grown up embedded in the sort of like bloody slasher genre of the seventies and eighties were making in the nineties. Right. So, given that Hooper was one of the guys who helped to form that, who helped to sort of build that into existence in the very first place. It's interesting to see him producing something that is a little bit more like what his inspired contemporaries were attempting to do. But um, so you're the one who actually brought this to the table. So if you want to talk (laughs) a little bit about why, um, you know, you you wanted to discuss the mangler and what about it sort of drew you to because uh, I'll admit, in terms of horror, Toby Hooper is a bit of a blind spot for me. I don't, I, I don't love a lot of his movies. I'd say the one I, I had the most familiarity with growing up was probably Invaders from Mars.
1: For me, um, I,
0: I mean uh, Poltergeist, of course. Well, sure, yeah. I mean, Poltergeist, you know, for but for what of course. that was his? <laughs> yeah, um, we don't know. I think a lot of the cursing and a lot of the <laughs> and kicking things. I think that was Toby.
1: Yeah, they both the headstones um I am a big fan of texas chainsaw massacre i I loved that movie um it's just not for everybody it's it's uh it's certainly iconic and it has certainly gotten out of hand um
0: sure, yeah,
1: but the original <clears throat> the original film is is really something um special, you know if I can use that word but this came up in conversation. My partner brought it up and said, have you ever seen like, I'm not making this up. Am I? I feel, I I don't think I hallucinated this. And, uh, uh, we looked it up and I, I had never, I had never seen it, or at least I don't have any recollection of seeing this movie. I have a feeling I probably did at some point, or I was in an adjacent room while this movie was being watched. Maybe. But, uh, but we watched it together, and and Toby Hooper's name flashed on the screen. I'm like, no, wait a minute. That's not possible. Right. How can the director of, of horror icon, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, have something to do with this movie? Um, and I watched it, and it, it, is, it is definitely weird. It's also based on a Stephen King short story. And not just any Stephen King short story. This is from uh, Night Shift. I think,
2: which is uh, yes. King's yeah, is, first is collection
0: of, of short stories. This is Early stuff. So, Supposedly, this was written. This was written a, a while before it was even published.
1: Yeah, well, and it was one of his magazine serials that was uh, published in in some other format in in the early early seventies. Um, you know, Night Shift is a mixed bag in a lot of ways. I mean, it has mm-hmm. Jerusalem's Lot. Uh, it has. I am the doorway. It, it uh I think this is the one that has Strawberry Spring in it, which is one of my favorite Stephen King stories. Um it's got uh I want to say the lawnmower man is in that first collection. So
0: um yes, a lot yes, of these are, are
1: very iconic King stories, and, and a lot of them are really quite good. The Mangler, though, I don't know. This is one of those King stories that's that's silly. Um, cause I, a lot of people take his work super seriously. You really shouldn't. Stephen King does a lot of silly things and he's a very silly man in many ways. And that's what I love about him. Um, this story is, is goofy. The way it ends is goofy. Um, just the whole thing. And it's, I don't know who would have read that and said, this needs to be a movie. I I want to I want to meet the crack team of marketers and producers who are like I just
0: read the
1: scariest story, <laughs> and I want to make it into machine a film
0: that eats people. And you know the um, only
1: man who could really bring that vision to life is Toby Hooper. <laughs> Toby
0: Hooper, yeah. Um, it. I mean the the sort of, night shift was published. Uh, I guess really like very shortly after the massive success that was The Shining. Because, you know, Carrie had been a a big success, right? No doubt. Like, it it was an an incredibly impressive debut of that kind of novel for Stephen King. But I I don't think he really entered into the, the national and public conversation until the smash success that was The Shining.
1: Right. He was um, a working writer. I mean, he was he was a yeah, guy who was writing hustled. stories in order to get them published in order to get that check because he didn't want to teach anymore. I mean, mm-hmm. that's that's really that's what I admire about him the right. most. It's like I really don't want to do that shitty job, so I will humiliate myself writing shitty I'll short do stories
0: whatever for a is block. necessary.
1: Um yeah. and occasionally, you know, he would in his early work he would stumble onto something really genius and then, you know, stuff like The Shining would happen, but the Mangler it's weird. Like it's just it's not I would not I would love to meet someone whose favorite King story is the Mangler.
0: <laughs> I don't I don't know if that person <laughs> exists. Who is this
1: person? Call me, but, please.
0: You know, I mean, in our in a brief discussion of Stephen King, just so we can kind of have a baseline to grow from for the what this story actually is. Stephen King, you know, who has been very, very open about his writing process, is 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 pretty open about the fact that a lot of his stories come from these sort of what if musings, mm-hmm. right? The well, hmm, what if what if this happened, right? And so, um, you know, the mangler for me is evocative of that really, really early King period where he would seize on an idea, right? No matter how ridiculous it might be, and he would just run it out.
1: And this one was right? based and on sometimes one of it worked. One so of bad. the many ridiculous strenuous jobs that he took he actually worked in an industrial laundry in an industrial
0: laundry Um, and i can imagine working in a facility like that and seeing this kind of machine and going like what the ever living hell i mean the one in the film is is just (laughs) ridiculous right i mean this the machine that's being discussed here is basically a press right it's just a it's just a press to to flatten sheets back out so that they can be ironed you know, in in mass. Right. So that weird
1: roller thing that's in the laundry room in everybody's basement that
2: you you don't know what it does. Your great
0: grandma has one. Yeah. You know, it's it's just one of those things. But I can imagine, you know, working, toiling away in that environment, which is miserable to begin with. And then sort of like, what if that thing was trying to eat me? Or maybe he even saw an incident where somebody almost got pulled in or like got a hand pulled in and, and you know, it's not like American safety regulations have ever really been in a great space. You know, a lot when of people working super dangerous things. I
1: but, kind of imagine um, that it's, it's like a first day on the job, you know, the guy training you says, and don't ever put your fingers in there because I saw a guy get his arm ripped off, like that kind of thing.
0: Right. Yeah. We call that one the mangler, you know, yeah. like whatever. I mean, and it is technically, it is called a mangle. Yeah. Like it's, it's a mangle. Like that's the term, but you know, you could see somebody sort of joshing with the new kid. Um. But yeah, I mean, night shift, I mean, the whole idea was that they were, like, weird. I mean, the whole collecting principle is that they were all kind of built around work, right? right. Like, you know, like, like eventually, you know, graveyard shift and, and things came out of that too. And it's, shitty you know, jobs. but it's the idea, it's like <laughs> shitty jobs where terrible things happen in the night. And, yeah. and so, you know, the mangler is, well, the only thing would be if you want to criticize the mangler for being ridiculous, then you would also have to criticize something like Christine. Because yes. it's the same basic idea, yeah. right? Demon possessed machine that you know runs amok on the people. Now, you know this film sort of disembarks from the Stephen King train at a certain point. Right? It's just
1: <laughs> it disembarks from it, a lot of logic it, and sense as well.
0: <laughs> yeah, like the Stephen King thing is very simple, right? And and he's also involving a lot of like weird witchcraft stuff um in the in the short story because the mangler it's like a combination and this is kind of in the movie but not really emphasized is that it's a combination of like three substances on laundry that go through the mangle that allow it to become demon possessed right it's like blood and you know deadly nightshade and, <laughs> you know and uh you know something else like so, yeah, there's another like piece but like because the mangle it encounters these three substances that opens it up to the to being possessed by a demon and becoming this ravenous beast this movie again has that element to it but they kind of background it and it becomes more about not realizing fully what they're up against and so but there's another sort of layer on top that hooper and his uh hooper and his screenwriter sort of add (laughs) to it that is king like i mean it's king-esque you know the sort of like The hidden bubbling underbelly under the town yeah the success comes from the evil like so i don't want to say it's not like a stephen king idea but it's not something present in the original short story right and so i mean it's it's a simple horror premise but it really feels like like a lot of those early stephen king stories it's so thin that this should have been like a sequence in cat's eye or something. Yeah, or like the you know, Tales like, from the Crypt episode. Right. Like th- this is like a 40 minute premise, tops. And yeah. and this movie's sort of histrionical attempts to extend that are part of the reason why it's kind of And it's fun. it's weird. It has opportunities um, to
1: extend it in a positive way. Like there are some characters that I, I genuinely wish they had more screen time. So sure. I sort of wish that the movie had not been well, I mean, it could have been shorter could have been a lot shorter but
0: right and i and i don't mean like i just it, mean the, it like the premise the per- for this yeah it better. shifts the you, percentage like of what's experience. happening
1: on screen in a bad way like it's mm-hmm. like you spent way too much time on this
0: part of the movie right and and it just kind of you know you're, you're trying to sort of deal with the fact that you're there's not much story that needs to happen here. right um all right so you know all of that background and and stuff Aside the the basic premise of this is that you have this small town in we're told it's Maine. This doesn't look like Maine, not at all. No. But anyway, we have this small town. At the center of it are you know a, a powerful business, a laundry business run by a character who's played here by Robert England in his sort of post-Freddy uh, downtime, I suppose, <laughs> in between uh New Nightmare and Freddy versus Jason at the center of this operation is a mangle right and this thing yeah. is just absolutely insane like i i appreciate the production design of the, of the people who built this it's it's in it's in one breath both extremely simple and kind of silly looking but also oddly intimidating um the way that that hooper shoots uh hooper shoots it but this mangle after a series of events uh, begins uh, harming people, right? Uh, consuming them, starting you know with uh, an unfortunate old woman that we're given about 25 seconds to appreciate <laughs> and see that everybody loves her and she's super sweet. And so after the incident, uh, a local police officer, police detective, played by um, Ted Levine, begins investigating and uncovering a a shocking secret at the heart of his town that he was unaware of, that involves this mangler. Um and it kind of just spools out from there like I don't really know if we have to expand the premise there are some really fun characters again England plays the sort of maniacal laundry shop owner Um, and and you know he has some specific <laughs> things about his character design that come into play later Levine is is playing the most harried and Fr- frantic and just frenetic strung out police detective that I think I've ever seen. Um, he is so hyper over the top in this movie that it works. Like I, I love his performance in this. Um, we have his weird uh, mystical occult knowing neighbor. Who I also love. Who is great. Uh, he hasn't, he doesn't do a lot, no, but he's no. really good in this. Um, And, and then, you know, sort of your standard array of, of, Women in Peril, which, you know, again, Toby Hooper knows a thing or two about that. Um we have uh a few people surrounding the detective who are who know him, including a sort of mysterious, sort of old school nineteen thirties photographer whose name is JJ J. Pictureman. Picture man, <laughs> um, which I, I thought was was fun. Uh, and a few other people, but it's, it's a small cast. It's a small film, uh, obviously made relatively inexpensively, although I think it did have a bit of a budget because they were legitimately seemingly anyway, trying to create another kind of Stephen King horror franchise, right? Trying to sort of tap into that. And, and, you know, Toby Hooper had certainly had his, his many swings, uh, at such things. But, um, so as we said, directed by Toby Hooper, uh, written by Hooper along with Stephen David Brooks, and and looked like some final polishing by a writer named Peter Welbeck, who also worked pretty frequently with uh, Hooper throughout at least the latter part of his career. Um, but that's but you know Westerman had a a massive Hollywood career. Um, I guess his real name was uh, Harry Allen Peter Welbeck, excuse me, but uh, Harry Allen Towers was his real name. Um, he just wrote under Welbeck towards the end but um i mean he wrote things like you know scarlet pimpernel and and stuff like that so i mean like the dude had chops and it seems like he was kind of brought in to kind of probably provide the basic adaptation and then then hooper kind of ran with his own version so i guess you know before we get into you know specifics about the film we can talk a bit more about hooper because this was created at a really not great time in toby hooper's career Mm, um Obviously, he he's making experimental art films in Austin in college. Uh, one of them is, is pretty widely available. I think it just got a re-release on Blu-ray not too long ago called Eggshells, mm-hmm. um, which is a, a lovely little sort of small experimental film. Then he makes Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which blows up, I mean, becomes... I mean, obviously, John Carpenter solidified the slasher genre with Halloween, but Texas Chainsaw Massacre opened the door that John Carpenter walked through, and and so in a lot of ways, the entire and I don't want to say the entire genre because obviously Hooper was inspired by European film, Italian film, like there were a lot of things that that you know Texas Chainsaw Massacre was also inspired by, but really it was a whole new it was a whole new genre at that point. He created something. Right. It was the combination of that exploitation filmmaking. Super low budget. Although, I mean, based on inflation, he had about $800,000 for Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It was not a small amount of money, right? This was not, I mean, John Carpenter with Halloween had a third of his budget. So, I mean, like, Hooper was not making Texas Chainsaw Massacre on pennies, right? Like, he... They did need to save money. I mean, obviously, he was like, I think there was some scheme where he was like taking cameras back on the weekends and then re renting them at a lower. I don't know. There was all this stuff that he tried to do to keep it cheap. I guess, you know, it wasn't, well, it wasn't like 800,000, probably like 350. But anyway, so he's, you know, but Texas Chainsaw Massacre opens the door. But then Toby Hooper sort of, like, things don't go smoothly for him after that, right? Like, Texas Chainsaw Massacre opens the door, but it was also this incredibly. It was this incredibly controversial film, yeah. right? More so than any of the slasher films that would come behind, although they have all had their share of controversy. But Texas Chainsaw Massacre—I mean, there were people attempting to ban it, and and you know it was—it was a lot of bad press. So when Toby Hooper came to Hollywood to find work, it wasn't necessarily a straightforward thing for him. And, and in 1974,
1: you know, I mean, horror was just—it was just different. You know the way people received yeah. it was just different. You know, a movie like Texas Chainsaw Mask, people watch it now. And it's like, oh, this is great. This is iconic. But it wasn't then. <laughs> I mean, people did not see this as the future of movies. They saw this as ew. But who would want to watch this?
0: Right. There was still a very strong contingent of people. And, and there still is. I mean, there's still a strong contingent. I mean, there, you know, I've seen all the Siskel and Ebert, you know, slasher film reviews where they just bag on these films because they, they don't understand why they exist. Right. And a and that lot of was them a, are bad. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's the other thing. It's like, you know, a lot of them are not good. <laughs> but, you know, Hooper was at least trying to create something that transcended that to a certain extent. Right? And so the 80s get, get rough for Hooper. Uh, he makes a couple of additional small exploitation films basically for hire. And then in 1982, after, you know, becoming friends with Steven Spielberg and, you know, some of the other people who had seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre and some of his other work and realized just how poten- how much potential Hooper had, Spielberg brings him in to do Poltergeist. Um, and as we mentioned before, Poltergeist was massive success. And um, a
1: fantastic
0: movie. and and uh, And holds up. Like, I watched it not too long ago. I I watch it a lot.
1: Like, I'm not going to lie. It's it's one. It's up there for me. I just I love Poltergeist.
0: Yeah, it's it's an incredibly well-made film. It was made for pennies, you know, at the time, you know, 10 million. And and it made 120 million, which, you know, in the 1980s was just an incredible success. There's a lot of controversy about Poltergeist, though. Um, Yeah. According to Hooper and Spielberg, it's Toby Hooper's movie. Spielberg has never claimed it. Spielberg never wanted it. People who worked on the set say that towards the end, Spielberg was basically directing the thing and that Hooper was was backgrounded because they didn't like the direction that he was taking it. And, you know, if you look at the, you know, Toby Hooper's filmography, Poltergeist is kind of a standout because it does not fit. (laughs) One of these things is not like the other. other. (laughs) One of these things just doesn't belong. And, and that's because it has like a really positive ending. It has it stinks a lot of, like of really strong in a great it, way. It,
1: I mean, I think that saves right. the movie, but yeah, it does not feel yeah. authentic to anything else that he makes.
0: No, it's, it's a movie that feels at the, at best, it is a blend of the worldviews of Toby Hooper and Steven Spielberg. And it works as a result because it has all of those like traditional, strong, powerful horror elements. But then it also has that heart, right? That little throughput of family that most seemingly a lot of American viewers want as their, you know, their thing to hold on to in a film that is confusing and surprising and scary. And so, you know, Poltergeist happens, huge success. So, of course, people come knocking. Everybody is interested in what Hooper has to offer. And then he doesn't work for a couple of years. Just kind of falls off the map, and he gets into bed. And why in the world he would do this, I do not know. Gets into bed with Globus and Golem. Which okay, so brief film history lesson, dear listener, if you are unaware, with Yoram Globus and Menahem Golem, these were two uh, Israeli film producers that blew up in the 1980s. They had money. They were throwing it around. And they wanted to make movies. And so that's what they did. And they produced... I'll go ahead and say it. Some of the shittiest movies that have ever <laughs> been made. <laughs> like, these are the Superman 4 quest for peace people. Yep. Right? These are the <laughs> masters of the universe adaptation people. Yep. Right? But they had money. Cooper was, a, at that point, a semi-proven director. And... They were thrown around. Now, I mean, these guys also did a lot of like your your just like shitbag action movies from the 1980s, like all the Chuck Norris stuff, the American Ninja series, which I have. I mean, the first two I kind of enjoy. Um, Who doesn't love a little bit of Michael Dudikoff?
1: Yeah, but it's one of those things where you look at why you enjoy it. You don't enjoy it because it's good. (laughs) Right. Like these are these are
0: funny. these are I mean, it fits with Toby Hooper because they're basically just like cheap slapdash produce it as fast as possible, like exploitation films of a, of the new era, if you want to call right. it that. But there's a lot of crap in here. And he falls in with them and he winds up producing what apparently was a fairly long um, gestating project based on a short story called The Space Vampires um, <clears throat> and produces Life Force. Yeah.
1: Worked with Dan yeah. O'Bannon, though
0: a lot. He did. Yeah, it this was, was a Dan O'Bannon screenplay.
1: God rest his soul.
0: <laughs> yes, weird little Dan O'Bannon. We, we love you. With his with his uh chronic Crohn's disease. Um He was aliens. And and things just start like going downhill. He yeah. leaves a bunch of projects. He gets kicked off a bunch of projects. And and basically what happens here is that Toby Hooper over the course of the 1980s did basically the only two things that can get you blacklisted in hollywood his films didn't make money and he was difficult to work with yeah if your films make money and you're difficult to work with no one cares if you're difficult to work with and your films don't make money then you don't get work yeah you're just you're done (laughs) you're done because if you're nice to work with and your films don't make money, people will still keep giving you projects in the hopes that because you're easy to work with, eventually the money will come and mm-hmm. everything will work out. You get I think a reputation you know,
1: of being like a working director, you know, we'll right. hire I, you because you will do the job.
0: And I think for most of his career, that's where to reference it, you know, previous episode, that's where like Rennie Harlan was. Yeah. Right? It's fairly easy to work with. I mean, he's, you know, he's, he's probably a challenging director in a lot of ways, but as far as his relationship with the studio and here's what we want you to do, Rennie Harlan. Totally cool. Sure.
1: I'll make that movie for you. (laughs) No problem. You want,
0: you want me to remake Die Hard in an airport? No problem. Got this. You want to add in another, you know, you want to somehow bring Al into this, even though there's no possible way he would be involved. Sure. (laughs) Not even going to question it. Everything's fine. And so, but Hooper gets that double bad reputation right his movies are not successful and he is challenging to work with lots of demands wants to be left alone um and and so his career kind of peter's out in the 1980s he's not really making much life force comes out and it's relatively successful um but it's a film that at least in the the sort of cultural understanding that i had both at the time and and after the only reason to watch that movie is because Matilda May is naked in it for 90% of the time. Yeah. Like, that's it. Uh, it's also an early Patrick Stewart film. And like if you want to see Patrick Stewart back when he had a little bit more hair.
1: And sadly, that's just like, <clears throat> that's horror movies. You know, a lot of them end up being, having that as their only reason to watch them.
0: You know? yeah I mean, like, you know, you don't come to Friday the 13th for the intense storytelling. Right. But you come for the boobs. Like that's, and horror knows its audience. And if that's what its audience wants, it will give it to them. Right. And, and Friday the 13th, which, you know, I I have issues with that franchise for obvious reasons, but to, but it knew what it was from the start. Right. Like it knew exactly what it was doing. It's like, we want to make Halloween, but more, you know, salacious, if you want to call it like, we want to push even harder down those places. Cause we know that those, we know that movie, that combination that will make money. That's why we're doing it. And, and that's what they did. And they were right. So I can't, I can't blame them for that. But Hooper, you know, really never had fallen into that particular sort of realm just yet. I mean, he had the exploitation side, but it never really went to that like full on. Although I maybe mean, I guess there are certainly some, you know, there are some components there. I guess in the midst of this, we should also mention that, he did do the television series adaptation of *Salem's Lot*, yes. right? So that's where to, Toby Hooper's relationship with Stephen King begins, right? Which is another reason why I think he got this, right? I think he had done a successful Stephen King adaptation before, so we'll let him come back and do this one. And so he had made that, and that was, and that's a good TV adaptation of *Salem's Lot*. Like it's, it's perfectly fine, especially for TV. Um, but you know, his career just kind of doesn't go anywhere. He makes *Invaders from Mars*, which again was the one. Probably the Toby Hooper film I watched the most as a kid, apart from Poltergeist.
1: Wasn't it, um And that was another Dan O'Bannon thing,
0: wasn't it? It was. Ooh. It was a Dan O'Bannon script, and it was and it was something that he had wanted to that Hooper had wanted to make for years, you know, just kind of this like 1950s B movie, you know, B movie horror. Um, and I think it was an adaptation. I think that there it was based on a previous film. Um, I mean, it's yeah, it's a remake of a, a 1953 film but he's updating it it's it's got a little bit of body snatchers in it. it's got some other stuff and and so i remember watching that and being fairly terrified by it i mean it was the whole you know kid versus the world all the adults are evil you know how can the kids survive kind of thing but it, it has this darkness to it and so all of toby hooper's stuff and and you know i'm interested to see if you agree it's it's you know if john carpenter is cynical in all of his stuff where he's just like looking at the world being like ah oh, this is all fucked toby hooper is like no 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 guys you don't understand we're fucked right like there's a seriousness to Toby Hooper's cynicism that I think is inescapable and you can see it all the way back to Texas Chainsaw Massacre yeah but his movies are are this strange tonal blend of weird sort of ironic situational humor and just Oh, it's the end of the world as we know it, baby. Like, we're done. <laughs> like, our society it's, is it's over. It's like nihilistic it's, comedy. Yeah, it's it, that's the perfect term for it. It's nihilism. Like, there is a nihilism at the core of all of Toby Hooper's work that defies it, it, it just fights back against any optimism at all. Right. Like, it's, there's just that might be none. why it's hard to work with. <laughs> it's probably why it's hard to work with. And so, so I have a theory and I, I, I kind of pitched this to you a little bit last time we talked. So I I want to take a brief sidebar and talk about another auteur filmmaker from the 1970s that got trapped in the genre of his own making. And that is George Lucas. Yeah. (laughs) So, So George Lucas, as most people know at this point, was like this weird kid from Modesto who loved race cars and Japanese movies and went to USC film school really with no plan <laughs> and and stumbled his way into THX one one three eight, which is this weird little experimental movie with Robert Duvall. Then he hits a little bit of mainstream success with American graffiti, gets a studio to believe in him enough to make this insane project.
1: And a lot of studios did not believe in him.
0: Like no, Fox was no. the
1: last one.
0: Wasn't it Alan Ladd's kid? Alan Ladd Jr., like, he basically made the decision as the head of the studios, like, yeah, give the kid the money he wants, just let him go do his thing, and then we'll see how it works. Yeah, and it and was it was, just, it was a
1: very limited thing. It was like, okay, you can have a little bit of money, like, yeah. just, just this much, and we'll see. We'll see how this
0: works. We'll see how this goes. And then, from that point on, George Lucas was the Star Wars guy, and and it's not that he didn't try to do other things. Right, it's not that he didn't try to expand beyond the the four walls of Star Wars that he erected around himself, but he then spent the next twenty years of his career. You know, I, I'm not gonna. I, this is not a sympathy plea for George Lucas. Right, the man is worth billion, literal billions of yeah, dollars. He's not like hurting. It's, it's fine. I
1: hope he's I mean, not he's hurting. Drying his tears but, with hundred dollar bills. <laughs>
0: But here's the thing is I think that at his core, I've always said that George Lucas is really just a frustrated documentarian, right? Like the guy just wants to make little short documentaries about stuff, things that he likes, right? Race cars and shit, whatever. Like, but he got trapped in this engine that has been very successful, but has not been artistically satisfying, right? Like that's the thing. And I truly believe that George Lucas his in, in his heart is an actual artist, right? Like,
2: he sees he, himself
0: think, as an artist at I the mean, very least.
1: His right. yes. his self-actualization is I, I am making art <laughs> and putting it into the world and everybody else sees right. it as you are making toys and putting toys into the world.
0: That's right. And he did that too. Right. I mean, you know, I, I think George Lucas is, is the artist who has commercial ambition. Yeah. Right. Whereas somebody like David Lynch is the artist <laughs> sans commercial ambition. Right. Even if but you were the,
1: commercially successful, you could never convince him of that never, or make it reflective
0: he, in his work ever. Right. He wouldn't care. Even yeah, even if David Lynch puts out a movie, a movie tomorrow and it is a smash success on every level, makes hundreds of thousands, hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, you know, he wouldn't care. It would change nothing about him. Um, it would just be like, oh, great. You know, whatever.
1: Well, and you can see that um, in the complete and total disconnect between David Lynch's work on twin peaks and the marketing behind twin peaks they're like they're not even related to each other he has nothing to do with that he's like i don't care what's in the commercial i made the
0: show i'm done yeah i'm finished you guys try and figure out how to market this that's great but i so i mean but what i what i've said about george lucas for years is that george lucas was was trapped in essence by his own success yeah and hollywood because it's how hollywood works boxed him into that universe and anytime he tried to push out either his audience rejected him or hollywood rejected him one of those two and often both you know look at red tails for example <laughs> right which by all accounts <laughs> is a fine <laughs> it's i mean it's a fine one of those war plane movies right like it's perfectly acceptable story that he was passionate about something he wanted to make nobody cared it's not Star Wars. Right? And, it's not Indiana Jones. And you know, in in looking and reviewing Toby Hooper's career before you know talking about this, the exact same thing happened to him. Pretty much, right? Like Texas Chainsaw Massacre became such a stamp on his career that I think he developed a really basically a love hate relationship with both that film and its eventual sequel, which people hate.
1: Well. <laughs> The sequel is a comedy movie.
0: Right. Because I think, that, well, one, I don't think most people realize that Toby Hooper is trying to direct comedies. Yeah. <laughs> I think ultimately these are all comedies to him. Because, you know, a part of that's, for me anyway, uh, if you read anything about the production of horror films, they're not, it's not a scary process to make a horror film. It's quite the opposite. It's long hours. It's taxing. It's frustrating. But there's nothing scary about it. Right. There's nothing frightening about it for the people making it because you, you see all the seams. Right. The you know, you are in firmly in Wizard of Oz behind the curtain territory but until,
1: until movies like the Evil Dead, too. We didn't. The audience didn't get to share in that delight. We didn't get to share in the, the you know, lack of horror and the, the kind of unintentional comedy of making a horror movie. Probably until right. th- that yeah.
0: movie. I think Raimi found one of the first kind of Raimi was the first director, in my opinion, to balance slapstick humor with <laughs> horror, right? Like just straight up, I'm going to punch this guy in the face and make him go whang. And, <laughs> and then, you know, something will jump out and try and kill him. Like and, and that's that's Raimi. That's his particular gift. I think Raimi handles schmaltz and schlock better than most other directors. Yeah. But you know Hooper has always had this sort of cynical, you know nihilistic humor it mm-hmm. running throughout all of his work, you know all the way back to Texas Chainsaw when you see the family arguing around the cannibalistic dinner table about you know did you close the door you know or whatever mm-hmm. you know Terrified like the, those me. pieces are always there yeah i mean in in the context of how Hooper presents it, that becomes scary, but I don't think he sees it as scary, no. I think he sees it as funny, and so. And there have been some interviews with Hooper, especially late in his career, where he was like, I th- I think just a lot of people don't get me and what I try to do. And, you know, at least that was the overall impression that I got. He's like, people just didn't really get what I was going for. And I think that, you know, by whatever strange mixture of success that he had at the beginning of his career, it gave him these opportunities to continue exploring and then continue pushing towards those things that he found enjoyable. And I really think the mangler. To come you know full circle back <laughs> is kind of the best expression of kind of where Toby Hooper's head is in terms of horror, especially at this point in his career. Because I think he was basically done with horror at this point. The problem was that horror was not done with him, right? Because that was the work he was going to get because of who he was. When horror directors really become a name story. on a poster,
1: like from the director of, yeah. you know, and that's, that's just a sad reality of how we
0: market movies. Right. And how trapped a director can become in his past success. Um, and that's why I think, you know, your your auteur directors of today work very hard to have a diverse catalog to avoid that. I yeah. mean, we can't call it casting, but I mean, it's, it's typecasting for directors and that's why you'll see David Fincher especially early in his career do a mixture of like book adaptations, original stuff, murder mysteries or like uh, family um, dramas.
1: Uh, my boy Paul <clears throat> Thomas Anderson, you know, the way that yeah, he is was, has the other example I was gonna, to was gonna completely predict. change his entire, you know, catalog with every single movie he makes.
0: Right. And look what happened with Licorice Pizza then he went back to the 70s. Mm-hmm. What immediately happens Oh well, this isn't as good as Boogie Nights. What's he trying to do? Is he trying to <laughs> boogie night himself again? And it's like, no. It's just he's just making, making an entirely different movie set in a roughly similar time period, but that's it. But I mean, that's that's how the film industry operates. They yeah. look at it and go, like, well, this isn't like this, or this is like this. Why is if this is like this, why is it like that? It if happens it isn't, why is it
1: every time Martin Scorsese right? opens his mouth or makes a movie? <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's like I mean, especially with like somebody like Scorsese, who's at this point made like what 150 fucking. Movies. Yeah, well, just, he's <laughs> just made.
1: Like, he's done everything.
0: Yeah, he's like, oh, he's just making a Raging Bull again, you guys. Oh, you know, whatever. It's it's just it's how Hollywood operates. It's how the marketing engine communicates these ideas to a mass market but Hooper of all of his horror contemporaries. So, I mean, if we look at the people who were doing the kind of things Toby Hooper was doing in the seventies, but were really that he began, you know, you've really just got John Carpenter. You've got, um, you know, Craven, but he doesn't really come in until the eighties. So he's kind of not really in that same role. When, when Toby Hooper was making Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Wes Craven was just straight up making porn. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's what Wes Craven was doing. So, you know, these, these contemporary directors of the 1970s, you know, I mean, if, if you want to get into, like, William Friedkin and people like that, those were, like, really serious guys, right? Like, all of their films were serious, right? And that's Corsese what you had to do
1: as a horror director if you wanted to differentiate yourself from, like, just porn and exploitation. Because mm-hmm. horror, like I said, it was not taken seriously. Like, people did not view it as a viable cinema. Not like we do now.
0: Right. Yeah, no, it it had not made that sort of cultural dissemination yet. There were certainly fans, right? The horror genre, I mean, the Hammer horror films, yeah, and all the stuff coming out of Britain. That's you know, it had its stuff. its people who, but yeah, it's it's very different. That's like pageantry, right? It's like stage plays, yeah. Um, you know, with horror, it's very you know immaculate ones and beautiful ones, like the horror, the Hammer horror films and a lot of those you know BBC, not really BBC productions, but those British productions, and uh, you know early Corman stuff. You know, all of those were you know, kind of working in that same place. But again, that was trash, right? That was the stuff that you went and saw at a Saturday matinee for a buck because, you know, nobody was there. And, you know, Texas Chainsaw begins to change that. And then, of course, Halloween and Friday, the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street, and, you know, like the, the the cycle continues on. But then Hooper is kind of left behind, yeah. right? His His unwillingness to be easy to work with his sort of strange affinity for the projects he wants to do and the film types of films he wants to make all of that stuff, you know, begins to sort of add up and, and unfortunately, you know, sort of derail what could have been a very interesting and varied career. So the Mangler hits in the mid nineties. And at this point he has not done much. Uh, He did uh, spontaneous combustion, uh, took a four-year break after Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, which again was was a sort no, of no it, received. Was a goal, <laughs> it was a Golden Globus, right? It was a Golden Globus film, but it was basically a, a parody, right? It was yeah. paradizing its itself. And and people were not into that. They wanted another sort of serious take on it.
1: Well, it's it's the same response people had to something like Return of the Living Dead. Where yes. It's like this this is funny, but what the fuck is this? Why why are you doing this? This right. is supposed
0: to be Why scary. did you do this? And you know and then you know Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3 which I guess is Matthew McConaughey's first on-screen appearance. Um he didn't have anything to do with it but you know the franchise continued on. And it's just, you know, it it was a very different film and I again I think that's because he's trying desperately to push away from this success that defined his career. But then, you know, The Mangler comes along in 1995 it's another Stephen uh, King adaptation so I mean again sort of harkening back to the early days of his career and and this very strange little project with a lot of room to expand so I mean Hooper again I, I don't want to sympathize with film directors film directing is a, a difficult business but you know Hooper seems like one of those guys that could have really restarted a real reexamination of B cinema and its relationship to Hollywood, right? And trying to legitimize stories and filmmaking techniques that when ostracized in the 1950s and sixties by Hollywood and pushed to the, to the margins could have come back and, and become a centerpiece. Right. It's it's what Spielberg and Lucas did with Indiana Jones with the serials. Right. Like we're going to end Star Wars. Really? Same thing. We're going to we're going to take this sort of a genre that was literally laughed at by most people. Like these are just the trash we put in front of our real movies and then turn those into movies. I think I think Hooper was the guy and and Carpenter a little bit, too. I mean, lest we forget that the thing is an adaptation of the thing from another world, which was a B horror movie from the 1950s. But I think Hooper was was the one who could have really worked. I mean, even Life Force, which is kind of this, you know, cheesy hammer horror vampire movie in space, or at least part of it. I think he was really trying to kind of bring light to these genres that obviously inspired him. I mean, you can see their inspiration in the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And and he just got shot down. He couldn't find anybody to pay for it. He couldn't find anybody to let him enact the vision that he wanted to enact because they were trying to lock him into these genre boxes. And and I think that by the time we get to the mangler, there's two ways you can read this movie and really only two ways. One, Hooper is completely given up and he's just trying to make another slasher film. Or I think he's trying to both create and lampoon the genre that has so mangled his own life in the same film and it doesn't really work but it's an enjoyable watch all the same right like because he is most definitely poking fun at the artifacts of horror at the time i mean why else would you hire robert england for this i mean unless they're just friends which they definitely could have been but it really feels more like hey who's the most like Who's the most successful horror actor of right now? Well, it's gonna be Freddie Robert England, right? Mid '90s, Nightmare on Elm Street was like the thing. And let's like just turn him into a purely comedic character with a little bit of menace. Like, I mean, it's you can see why he was cast. I mean, it's kind of what Freddie was yeah. too, and he's in heavy makeup and all that shit. But, um, I don't know. It just this movie feels like a, a director, quite literally, who is comfortable and capable. Right. Like there is no question that Toby Hooper knows what he is doing. But at the same time, he's almost wrestling inside of himself with do I take this seriously or do I let my own ennui and frustration inform the way that I present these ideas on screen? And I kind of think that Ted Levine and his just hyperkinetic exasperation with the proceedings, I think it's Toby Hooper. I think I like, he that. turned that character into himself. Just like, what is happening? Why is th- why are things like this? I just think, some think of it's his,
1: just some of his comebacks. Yeah, some of his sourness. Stuff. Cause he is, he's, he's a really so sour, sour character. Just really He
0: is. And it is explained at the end, sort of what yeah. happened. Although you it's heavily you know, you can kind of figure out what, what took place. Because everybody's like, Are you okay, man? Like is anything all right with you? Like, mm-hmm, I don't know um it takes a long time to get to that stuff though it's does. like it's literally the end of the movie before we know but so i mean again i don't want to belabor you know just the director side of things but i really think toby hooper is a kind of fascinating character um you know he passed away in 2017 i guess uh 2018 um he was he benefited from there was a texas chainsaw massacre remake directed by. Marcus Bell, um in the early 2000s that was surprisingly well-received. I've seen a lot of people try and say movie, it, that it it's sucks. even superior. It it, he, they try to say it's superior to the original, and I'm like... That's well, stupid.
1: Uh, if you think that... Uh, just mm. Listeners, if you think that, you're wrong. <laughs> you're just wrong. I'm sorry.
0: Right. like You can go yell at me on Twitter. It's, it's of the horror output of the early 2000s with all of its flashy titles and grinding you know new metal guitars it's it's a decent it's a decent one of those it's it's okay um but to yeah to say that it's better than the original i think is like a real that's a real cut above if you were desperate for any kind of texas chainsaw massacre stuff it would satisfy i guess (laughs) but I, I have a heart. I mean, and I like Marcus in I I think he's actually a pretty decent director. I'm kind of sad that his career is basically petered out. He hasn't done anything in a long time. You know, but again, it's kind of because the same thing happened to him as Toby Hooper. Like, we'll call it the curse of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. He got stuck making a bunch of horror movies. He made the Friday the 13th remake, too, which, again, is like Kind of unwatchable. Like the horror parts of that are fine, but the teenager parts where they're obviously being played by 35 year olds and just obsessed with getting high constantly are unwatchable. Like, Oh my God. And then he made that Conan movie with Jason Momoa, I guess. And, uh, uh, and then a movie that I've literally never heard of called Exeter. I have no idea what it is. And and then he hasn't made anything sense. And and that's, I, that's sad because I think, you know, he's a decent visual stylist, but again, once Hollywood decides this is the kind of director you are, you're going to have to fight your whole career to not get boxed into that. And that's really sad. So, you know, Hooper has been a fascinating person to dig into. I did rewatch Life Force because um, it's free on Tubi. <laughs> hey, <laughs> I've really Tubi. Been enjoy- <laughs> I've been enjoying Tubi here of late. Um but uh, I did rewatch *Life Force*. Uh, rewatched a chunk of *Texas Chainsaw Massacre*, but I, I, I can only watch that after my kids go to bed. Yeah, like it's it not, it's, it's d- not appropriate. It's, it's, like some horror movies, I'm kind of okay with just having on around. If I'm like watching, like the they could ones, watch but some movie older guys. Like, No, but yes. not, but not Texas, not Texas Chainsaw Massacre.
1: No, I mean, it's I was, crazy. I was actually a bit older by the time I saw it, and it's still. I remember that experience really really clearly because it is terrifying scary movie
0: yeah so the mangler however is is not necessarily a scary film no Uh, it has some moments i suppose (laughs) depending on what mood you're in but um all right so i guess we are ready to get into spoilers again if you want to watch a film about a uh, giant laundry machine that eats people (laughs) then uh the mangler is is kind of challenging to find these days uh, there are not a lot of streaming services clamoring for the license to stream the mangler but uh, if you do want to go check it out uh, you can certainly come back to this point in the podcast and continue listening but if you just want to sort of hear us break down the film and what it's about and it's uh, its ups and downs and just how it may be indicative of Toby Hooper's mental state in the mid 90s then stick around um, but we're gonna get into the the spoiler portion as we break down the film. Um, and I'll just start with a, a question that I feel will be on the lips of anyone who watches this film, and that is, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> um Ooh. now it uh this film opens strong, right? It opens in traditional slasher style. We have a bunch of just like I mean, you know, whether they're the camp counselors at Crystal Lake or the, you know, harmless, lovable teenagers of Elm Street. Um, this case, we have a bunch of women who work in a the laundry. Um, there's a lovely old woman who treats everybody nice, except for that new girl who's kind of nasty. Mm, watch out for her.
1: She's slutty. <laughs>
0: that's it, you, slut. Uh you've got dark hair and you wear makeup to work. There's a there's a lot
1: of of that
0: in this movie. <laughs> there is, yes. It's it's which is, I mean, that's its,
1: its own horror trope. So I get it, yeah. but it was oh,
0: definitely yeah. funny. It was interesting that it just fired off immediately without context. So there's there's a girl named uh, was it Shelly or Sherry? I think Sherry. Sherry. Um, Sherry. And and so they're they're working the mangle, um, which this uh, right off the bat we need to say this machine is just insanity. <laughs> it's just chains and gears and press wheels and big giant folding metal plates and. You know, just mass. This machine, if it really existed, would just be a nightmare.
1: It's what we call a set
0: piece. (laughs) It it is a set piece. Um, It it, and you know, but it's clever in the way they design it. It's huge. Um, It it sort of has skin, uh, which you know comes into play later. Like it's, you know, it's sort of like you know old iron cast iron castings you know where they would get that kind of texture on them from Eh. the the drying and and the the sort of finishing process it's kind of that but hyper extended to where it almost looks like scales you know or some kind of lizard-like skin on it it's
1: very heavily personified and you know immediately that this machine is special because it doesn't look like anything else in the factory it's i mean it is this the centerpiece of of every single scene that it's in and and it's it's a cool prop. Like, I hope somebody kept parts of it.
0: <laughs> I hope it's yeah, still it's, on
1: some studio back lot somewhere.
0: I, I would hope so. You know, maybe, you know, the the Hooper estate has it in a pole <laughs> barn.
1: Toby Hooper kept the mangler in his basement. Just kept the
0: mangler <laughs> in his basement. Um, it's it's a remarkable thing. I mean, it it's cheesy in a lot of ways. I mean, there's, you know with any kind of big massive set piece like that you need to have some visual life to it right it's got to move it's got to shift and and you know you can tell they just basically added like gears and chains along the sides to make it look like it was <laughs> doing stuff you know so there's some some silly things but so this mangler is operating and um Sherry is is trying to to turn it on turn it off i don't remember she's manipulating some kind of big handle that is on the side And, uh, she gets bumped. There are some guys moving a a refrigerator, an old school ice box out through this, which is, is another thing about the production design of the mangler, um, is that it's, it feels it's, it's very oddly contemporary slash old, right? A lot of the equipment sort of is meant to feel a bit of out of, a bit out of time, right? Like it's, It's not modern stuff, but yet we're we're definitely in the modern era. So there's this odd thing kind of going on. Again, I I imagine it's intentional on Hooper's part to try and whether he was trying to make the story timeless or if it's just his fascination with the 1950s B-movie, right? Because there's a lot of those elements in this as well, right? Of the 1950s horror film. So there's like an old school icebox being moved out of the facility. They bump her as she's messing with it. She cuts her hand and then she, you know, sort of flings blood all over the mangrove. And on the icebox. Uh, the mangle. And the icebox. That's true. Her her bloody handprint goes onto the side. And it you know, the machine reacts, or at least the, the camera moves in such a way as to imply that there's a reaction from the machine. And then, you know, there's an explosion, a very poltergeist looking explosion, if I can call it that. Um Sylvie Hooper loved his like blue paint on effects in film, a lot of that in this movie. And and you know, obviously there's a reaction of some kind. Right. And so up above looking down on this is the owner, uh, Mr. Gartley, I guess, played by uh, Robert England in in another, you know, huge prosthetic get up. But Mr. Gartley is also just horrifically deformed. Um, he has, uh, well, I don't want to say deformed, but he's, he's been injured at some point in the past. And so he wears all these assistive devices Right, he has these big leg, you know, braces on sort of, but it's comical, like it's just yeah. It's, it's not so in any way supposed top. to be representative I mean, of
1: a person who has actually been injured in this
0: way. No, like I mean, he's basically wearing leg braces like Forrest Gump in Forrest Gump, yeah. When he's a kid, but they're just these hyper real. They're chromed out. I mean, they they look like the the hood ornament of a car, right? Like they're just extreme. And he's got like dual canes. It's again, it's it's like if if I was if I was not Toby Hooper and I was directing this, I would pick like you know I would actually go to a medical supply store and I would say, "Okay, give me you know leg braces for somebody who had experienced you know this kind of injury and then give me like assistive walking devices like i would you would go there and then maybe you know you throw those off to the production department or the production design department, and they say, oh we're gonna add some add some spice which I'm one do you want us to use balls. Toby all of them, yeah, yes. he was all no of he's them. like. <laughs> Put every single one of them that you found together, just bolt them all together as if they were a single unit, have them run up his back, have the canes that he used, have weird little heads on top. Just like it's it's just to the nth degree. And and so here's again where you can kind of choose either Toby Hooper has just straight up lost his mind and he's just going so over the top because he's got nothing left in the tank. Or he thinks this is hilarious. Right? It the is entire point. And it is. And so I'm I'm kind of more in that back side of it where I think Toby Hooper I think he sees this as a comedy, you know, like the problem is is that it's also a horror movie. And, you know, maybe he was really into Friends at the time and he's like, I really just want to put that Friends theme song over the scene, but I can't. You know, and it's just like, but you could you? I don't know. Maybe I should do that as an editing project now. (laughs) (laughs) The mangle, you know. (laughs) But I mean, it it has that kind of tone. And I really think that that's part of of the problem with Toby Hooper's latter output is that the tone is not what people expect in a film like this. Yeah. I, you know, I hate to be the guy that's just like, well, people just don't get it. But I think in this particular case, I think people just don't get what Toby Hooper's going for. Uh I think it's also important to note here and we've had this discussion is that Toby Hooper was a boomer. Yeah. Um and we know from the anecdotal experience of our father that boomer humor is weird. Is weird and dark. Yeah. <laughs> and unexpected at and, times. And very unsympathetic.
1: Right? I think unsympathetic that's and- why boomers made such interesting horror movies is because they don't have an ounce of yeah. sympathy in them.
0: <laughs> and And a lack of self-awareness. Yeah. Right. Like not aware that the things that they think are funny either aren't funny or aren't going to be interpreted as funny given how you present it. Yeah. Um, And and maybe maybe it's a bit of that. I, I don't know. But it certainly feels of a piece with a different era of filmmaking than 1995. I mean, this is the year before Long Kiss Goodnight came out, right? This is I mean, these two movies are happening at the same time. It's it's kind of crazy to think that those two things exist, but both of them have humorous ideas in them that are from a previous generation. Yeah. And, and then in, in Toby Huber's case, maybe two previous generations. before. So the, the film opens this, this event happens, the, the girl is injured, but she's fine. I mean, she's got a cut on her hand that doesn't seem to want to heal, but what have you? Gartley just tells everybody to get back to work. Then um, this, this little old woman that everybody, you know, again in the 23 seconds that we have to get to know her everybody seems to like her she shares her medicine she's the she has antacids
1: and and she's the laundry she's like, grandma these
0: they'll be good laundry everybody grandma. loves me and and then <laughs> she gets she she drops her medicine and she's trying to get it from underneath the mangle which oh just get some new antacids, lady like the, what are you yeah. doing
1: and apparently, she's worked well, there for such a long time. She knows how dangerous years. this stuff is, but yet she still tries to get the N acids
0: out. Still tries to get the N acids out. And she gets pulled in. And, and again, a movie that just had Robert England cackling from a catwalk in the strangest braces and armature that you've ever seen yeah. now proceeds to crush a tiny old woman yep. in this mangling and, like, machine. The mangler is graphically.
1: spraying blood everywhere
0: everywhere
1: all over Um, the other little laundry ladies it it's horrific but it's also kind of funny (laughs) it's it's
0: it's really a a strange back and forth like it, it is very much a this is terrifying this is funny so like she goes through she goes through the entirety of the mangler right she's up and down and all around and crushed and smushed and bent and then the mangler uh, is supposed to like deliver a nice sort of flat sheet on this big you know, like metal thing at the end and then get folded. Right. So then it flips the metal plates forward and then you get this nice like folded sheet. And in you get a folded memo. You get folded grandma, uh, which becomes a huge point for the Detective <laughs> Unseen, which is where we meet <laughs> Ted Levine. Um, Who is precious.
2: I he think he's is, a and, wonderful and I, actor
0: he is i mean I, I guess if you don't know who ted levine is uh the two things he's probably most famous for at this point by far are playing buffalo bill <laughs> in silence of the lambs in 1990 so, <laughs> you think i'm pretty right like yeah that guy <laughs> yeah <laughs> and uh being the police chief on monk the lovable police chief on the *Monk*. Lovable, like this is a guy whose
1: career monk. is 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 almost as schizophrenic as someone like toby hooper where it's like what the fuck are you doing man however the result is is so much better because he can play all of these very very i would say diverse
0: characters yeah i think his and i don't want it to sound insulting i think his sort of every means that he can morph into a variety of different characters um, so I mean I don't want to make it seem like Ted Levine's career has been limited to those things those are by far the the things in, for which he has achieved the most success and acclaim but I mean he's also appeared in uh, he was like one of the main antagonists in the most recent Jurassic World movie mm-hmm. uh, which I didn't think was fantastic but he was good in it I mean I thought he was a good villain um, he's also I mean, but, really
1: funny like a lot of his line delivery ends up being hilarious in this and I'm not if that's what kind of pushes me toward this movie being almost an intentional comedy. Um, because he is doing comedic things
0: here. I have to believe yes. that.
1: I have to believe he knew that.
0: His entry is comedy. Because yeah. he comes in as this like blustery police station. Like, what's going on? I, this is my crime scene.
1: I've seen this a hundred times already. Seen I've it 100- seen all kinds of dead bodies
0: before. I, uh, and then he walks to the back of the Mangler and sees folded grandma and is just like, nope, 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 and, and like throws up and is like horrified by the whole thing. And you know, if you want to read this as a serious horror film, then it's like, oh, this is the director telling me that, you know, it's really these guys that's really bad. But if you read this as a comedy. It's, it's literally just a sight gag. It's like a Buster Keaton style. Yeah. Whoa. You know, like it's it's just that. And and I feel like it's more of that. And the way that Levine plays it so big, uh, it, it just sort of, you know, works. Um, but so then he, he ends up stealing antacids from the old lady's <laughs> purse because his stomach's upset after throwing up after seeing her folded body. Um, that's a little later, I guess. But in any case, like he suspects that there's something wrong. But really, just that it's it's an error with the machine, right? The machine's safety protocols were broken, and so he's more coming at it as you know is is the company negligible for this lady's death because they weren't keeping up with the safety equipment or, or what have you, which is a, a very standard you know sort of way that the police detective might legitimately inter, you know interact with a situation like this. But very quickly, things sort of spiral right. Um, so I guess the the girl, the, the the slutty girl that everybody doesn't like, is named Lin Su, and supposedly she is Gartley's new protege. He is, is grooming her, which is gross. But and then there's Robert like England a big sweaty foreman, like gross people. I mean, he does he's really good at it. Does too. it with, <laughs> he does it with a plum. Right. Um, the one thing I wanted to call out is that everybody is sweaty in this film. Yeah. All um, the time. They're so sweaty. Everything. It's it's just. Like, Again, this is so supposed bumpy. to be Maine. Um and nothing about it looks like Maine. I, I honestly was trying to f- figure out where it was filmed and I looks I, like I don't Texas. know. <laughs> yeah, it like it looks like Louisiana, like there are bogs and and like a lot of like hanging trees. <laughs> like, yeah, it just, like it's, it's just it, not it's It doesn't not read Maine. like Maine at all and and that's fine I, it doesn't i mean it's it's Maine because it's stephen king and everybody knows the stephen king story take place in maine so whatever but it it doesn't feel like it and everybody's so sweaty and it's just it looks like it was filmed on a studio backlot or at you know a, someplace in, in louisiana or new orleans or something so this police detective after this horrific event like um he goes home and and the ver- they pretty quickly start like going into a a sort of like a cult Direction, right? Where there could be something else going on. And his, I guess it's his brother in law, isn't it, who lives next door? It is. It is. But that is so not clear. That is not made clear
1: at any point in the movie until almost the very
0: end. No, it's like his, you think it's just his weird neighbor that's kind of looking out for him. But it actually is like, (laughs) right. But it is like a relative. And this guy is a demonologist. And a philosopher and a
1: bit of an it artist so happens. and
0: he's kooky. <laughs> Do you know where I think the Louisiana stuff comes from in my brain for this? I think it's because their, their relationship and some of the shit that happens in this movie, it made me think of the old Gabriel Knight games. I think that's <laughs> where that, that connection is coming Gabriel from in, Knight, Ga- in my course. brain. Uh, those games are pretty good, man. For, for those early like hunt and click Sierra adventure games, Tim Curry. Yeah. I mean like those, those games were legit at the time. They were, they were big deals, but it just, it has kind of that weird vibe, which, you know, is, is hard for me to, to sort of pin down, but it is very, it's, it just doesn't feel like it it doesn't have that Stephen King sort of castle rock horror movie feel like it does. It's not real. And I don't know if Hooper's really going for that. I really don't. It, it, kind of doesn't matter i guess very quickly as he's describing the events of what happened the brother sort of is like oh that's very strange um i uh you know i, I think maybe there's something else His going on and i guess that... sense is activated right <laughs> and he's got like this weird backyard with all this like shit hanging from stuff it's Which so is weird like it's, it, it's such a
1: just... cool set and this was such an opportunity to develop this character and this relationship a little bit but it just doesn't happen it's just not part of the movie's plan it's not part of Hooper's plan to develop these two characters even though I, I love their back and forth I think
0: mm-hmm. yeah, I mean really their back and forth is kind of the backbone of the film I mean we did what well, we discovered
1: with with Terry I love a good sidekick and I really really felt like Mark kooky Mark was a great sidekick in the making and he ends up being that but I just wanted more of that kind of character interaction. I think that would have helped the movie.
0: Yes. I, I think this film, this is a film that actually would have benefited. Uh, I mean, we talk all the time about, you know, m- bring back short movies. This movie's one Oh six, which is kind of
1: longer than it it's, needs you know, to be. It's,
0: it's still, it's still longer than it needs to be, but it, it probably, this film needed to spend its time more wisely. Yeah, That's really the issue. It's spending plenty of time. Like this is not a film that I think is is overly long, nor is it a film that I think is too short and needed to be padded. It's more about what scenes we're given and shown, and where time is spent. Yeah. In the film, that's really more my issue with it. Exactly. And it, because I think we spend a lot of time on the horror elements, we spend a lot of time in that room with that fucking mangler, just staring at it, right, just watching it do stuff, and and it just doesn't really feel as a result that characters that we do become interested in like Mark and his relationship with his brother-in-law um they don't really get explored that much and, and things kind of get dropped right plot threads just kind of go places and then sometimes they don't and and you know it just kind of gets twisty but the the next really big event in the script is that the icebox the one that sort of triggered the accident the initial accident a kid i guess it's a kid i think it's a yeah. kid gets uh killed in it right gets trapped inside of it which you know this is 1995. That was, that was a thing, right? Don't throw out your old refrigerators in the backyard. Kids can get trapped in there, you know? And so like, it feels like it's playing on that because there's nothing about that in the original short story. This is an yeah. addition for the film, but it's mostly to try and build, to try and justify the fact of why they might think this thing is demon possessed. Right. right. Cause like Mark gets that idea pretty much right away. But then obviously uh, Ted Levine John they have to Anthony, find a I way in name. the movie
1: to make it real to our cynic
0: and this right. is and
1: how it does yeah. it but it's not this really that convincing to
0: do it um, yeah and so he they they, he goes to investigate this this icebox death and then they make the connection between the story that the girl had told at uh, the laundry about being hit by a uh, an icebox and falling into the machine getting blood everywhere. And so the the brother decides to try and does he exorcise the ice box right there? Is that what happens? Yes. I mean, they see that it's possessed and it's like shooting blue sparks into the air and all this this crazy stuff. Um, but yeah, then they they basically do like a demon exorcism on the ice box and and there's there's obvious evidence that it was indeed demon possessed. There were like dead birds inside and all this stuff. But like, I love the I, I love the people around the around the icebox scenario because there's like the grieving mom and dad who are just like hysterical then there's the next door neighbor in curlers who's like it wasn't my fault <laughs> i
2: didn't do it it's just
0: like it's just like this it's just so manic and crazy how all this goes down and then ted levine is just this whirlwind at the center of it just like you shut up you go over there and get this lady like he's just barking orders and he's just he's on so his, angry at his wits end like we don't it's, know what
1: or who he's angry with but he's angry with the icebox he's angry with uh, god
0: yeah. <laughs> he gets a sledgehammer out of the or an axe or sledgehammer I think out of this lady's garage it just goes, goes ham on this icebox just like and you can tell it's just all of his rage and fury and everything is just being brought out and then the icebox like attacks him back <laughs> It's so silly, but it's, it's that kind of like, you know, it's that over the top thing that, that can sometimes in, especially when paired with horror, it it just, you don't, you don't know what, what am I supposed to feel right now? Am I supposed to be laughing? Am I supposed to be crying? Am I supposed to be angry? Like what, what am I trying to do? And this is, this, this is the Toby Hooper problem is that. I think Toby Hooper's goals for this scene are just very different from what an audience's response to this scene. And I don't
1: know that we'll ever know what
0: those goals were. No, I, I really don't. I don't and, think he, okay. <laughs> he, I, don't think he shared, I don't think he shared it with the editor. <laughs> just took, I think he was just like, cut it there, Steve. Or, or who, who edited this? David Hefner. Um, he's like, cut it there, Dave. But, but why, Toby? Just cut it there, what
1: I said. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's where the cut goes. Um, but, you know, so they they have this icebox incident and it it doesn't convince Ted Levine's character that there's something spooky going on, but it does open up the possibility, which for a cynic like him is, is a good thing. And there's just there's a lot of the thing I appreciate about Hooper's stuff. And I, I saw this in Life Force. You definitely see it in Poltergeist is that he's willing to spend screen time on small moments seemingly unimportant ones and as a result i think some of the like quieter moments between levine and uh De- was daniel matt moore i guess who plays mark mm-hmm. um the the quieter moments between them i think are really sweet like the there's the one where they get home and it's the morning and he's like sitting on the stoop and there's just this quiet like hey do you want do you want to come over for you know like a it's like dinner or you want to come over for breakfast or you know, just like there's this quiet little moment, and it's shot very clean, and and you get to see a lot of emotion in it, like that kind of stuff. He's willing to take time for, and I think if anything, in this movie, as we said before, would have benefited from more of that. I right? agree. like a little bit more yeah. to help sort of extend out who these people are and why we should care. Because in terms of protagonists, and and the the main detective character is the same, you know, central character in the the short story. It follows this police detective attempting to unravel why this machine is killing people and and he's your fairly typical stephen king like harried law enforcement professional right like he's pretty boilerplate king at this point um if if the if this is not the main character of one of king's stories you will find a character like this in there right um even up until I, i guess the outsider uh which i don't know if you've read that um the the book the outsider i thought was really good and then um, they did an HBO adaptation that's uh, Jason Bateman it's directed. That was also very good. But at the center of that is uh, Ben Mendelssohn playing this kind of like harried sheriff, right? Like who makes a mistake, screws up big, and then has to kind of eat crow for the rest of it. And it's, it's, the, same, it's the same, right? It's the yeah. same character. Instead of Ted Levine's character losing his wife, um, in The Outsider, it's the character losing his son his son is killed, but it's the same, like stricken with grief, makes bad choices, treats people badly. You know, it's, it's, it's a thing that we see in Kings. Self, right. right. Apparently Stephen, for Stephen King, all law enforcement officials are dealing with the death of a loved one, really pissed off about it and willing to break the rules to get what they need to get done. Yeah. And, and that's just kind of like what happens and that. And this is that guy. So, Where we're headed with this, right? There's no reason to beat around the bush. Is that the mangler is not just a folding machine. Not anymore. It is a demon (laughs) that the town elders in this little town in Maine have willingly sacrificed their 16-year-old virginal daughters to for decades in order to obtain power. I'm just going to let that sink in. Yep. Just chew because on it for a minute. Just just let it rattle around in your brain. So the <laughs> this is not in the original King story. No. This is a pure. Which is surprising because it feels edition. like
1: it could be. I mean, I feel yeah, like and Stephen that's what King I, could
0: write this. Right. That's what I wrote before. Is like this this has all of the hallmark pieces of a Stephen King story, right? it, it really does. Because, you know, there's that the well of evil beneath the, the 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 safe surface right and it's and it's really the adults that are doing bad things for themselves that's very stephen king but in this context it's it's just rem- i'm not going to say silly but it's pretty silly it's it's a little bit goofy it's ex- Yeah, but, it's extremely silly but you know in essence gartley is, has not sacrificed anyone in a while, I guess. I think that's the idea or or his sacrifice He wants more was, power maybe. Maybe I think his sacrifice was his own legs, right? Like he's he himself was mangled by the mangler. Maybe he was the first. We, we again, a lot of that is just left kind of like I don't know. Cuz how would you, you know, how would a detective discover that kind of information? And so we we very quickly morph from a just typical slasher people getting murdered inside of this machine kind of situation to, Oh, now there is a detective mystery, right? So now him and uh, his brother-in-law are going to go and do interviews and talk to people like what's going on. And then that's where the movie just really sort of starts introducing weird side characters. We've got the aforementioned JJJ picture man, um, Played by Jeremy Crutchley, who is also the mortician. So when he goes down and sees grandma in a basket, um, again, who has been removed from the basket and reassembled, uh, the mortician is is also JJJ Picture Man. Not sure why, but sure. And and it seems like, and I don't I don't know if you read this the same way that Picture Man had either been around so long that he had kind of figured it out, or maybe was involved, right? Because he's also yeah. in this like weird kind of old age makeup. Which I mean, at this point, Robert England was in his would have been in his late forties, early fifties, so they wouldn't have needed to really make him up, but they really make him up to look just older and, and wrinklier. And it seems like Picture Man gets the same treatment. Yeah. I don't know if that's because Crutchley was just young and they wanted to make him look older so he could play that dual part, or if they're trying to say that the the way the Mangler like extends your life. Sort of does this to you like again i, I kind of was trying to figure out okay are you trying to say something here with and, this man the
1: movie that, doesn't let you know the movie doesn't know
0: it doesn't tell you it's not interested
1: give it in anything those up
0: <laughs> so there's a series of additional very horrific deaths uh the so gets gets his arm ripped off and well he gets his arm stuck and then they chop his arm off <laughs> um which even as I was watching, I was like, "There is no way you could swing an axe into that position with enough force to take somebody's no, arm off." Because no. um, he's like stuck. He's like stuck in it and up under it. And this guy's like, "I've got the axe. I could take your arm off." And he's like, "Just do it." And then he like swings it once, and his arm just pops off. Yeah. I'm like, eh, "No, that's Weez. not how that works." But <laughs> um, you know, but it's again, if you're going to get upset about the gore in your giant mi- folding machine murder, <laughs> then. You're probably you've come to the wrong place. Yeah, this was not good for you. I think maybe that's Toby Hooper's idea behind this. He's like this whole premise is just ridiculous in the extreme. So the investigation is is fairly boilerplate. It doesn't. They don't really figure anything out until JJJ picture man on his deathbed because he's dying. Um, it gives him like a picture book with all of the newspaper clippings that he's collected over the years of like disappearances daughters going missing and like all is 16. he dying
1: because he won't take part in the in the Again, I had that thought too yeah
0: like is that why maybe i we don't know like it's just not clear but what I did love about that scene because it comes pretty late in the movie and and I also love there are a couple of like scene transitions in this that are great because like there's this um i guess it's supposed to be like city hall or something like you know where the police department is and the morgue and all of like the city functions and so that's like a super normal building looks like any building you can get to in the world but then when they go down to like the morgue it immediately turns into this like nightmare world i kept thinking i i just recently replayed silent hill 2 and i just kept thinking like did we just did horror did (laughs) sirens sound did we just go into night because it goes literally from like these teal walls and nice like banisters and baseboards to like brutalist stone hallway. (laughs)
2: It's like, what is
0: this? (laughs) Basements don't look like this, especially basements of municipal buildings. But it's like, whatever. Um, It was just a funny thing. I kept because it happens like three or four times that they like just go down this little stairway, and all of a sudden, this nightmare. (laughs) But anyway, uh, so but after he he does this reveal, and he's like, you know, don't let the man. I don't even remember what he says. You don't let the man get you down, or whatever. (laughs) he he sits up and he like spits blood just like and like blood goes everywhere and it gets on the glass plate that they had in front of the camera right a lot of times anytime you got something flying at the camera you don't want that stuff getting on your camera so you just put up glass in front of it angle it in such a way so it doesn't reflect blah blah blah. but they long taked it and like Levine's reaction after he dies, he like gets up and he's like, God damn it. Like, Whoa. like he's acting to the to the moon, just like these fuckers, you know, he's just like hands in the air and he's getting restrained by his brother-in-law and there's still a little spot yep. of blood. He <laughs> didn't like stop and clean it off. So it just, it just breaks reality, right? Because at that moment you realize, oh, there's, this is a camera. There's a piece of glass in front of it. And there's this little dot of, you know, fake spit up blood on it. And I realized like the way that they, you know, they could have cut it. They they totally could have just insert a cut, wipe the damn camera off and gone. But they just didn't. So that was my next thing. We talked a little bit about, um, I I guess, in Long Kiss Goodnight about like everything feels like the first take. Mm -hmm. I think that's this too. Yes. Everything feels like the first take maybe two maybe three but definitely no more like it's just good especially we got with it. a lot of Levine, we got it moving on you know it's it's the clint eastwood phenomenon right like oh could we do that again clint why would we
1: yeah frankly? we did it <laughs>
0: no that you did you said the lines you stepped in the place i wanted you to step we're finished here moving on and and if and if there's anything i've I've learned about horror from watching numerous horror film production documentaries is that horror is not something you execute that way. Yeah. Right. Like it takes you, you hope you'll get it on the first take. You yes. almost never do. But you, but you plan to get it on the fifth. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like that's the thing. And, but I mean, so much of Le- Levine's doing here feels improv, right. It feels just off the cuff. Um, Especially there's that scene when he like gets his mail from the mailman in the morning <laughs> and he's like, hey, how's it going, detective? And then he like gets his mail and then he like looks like he's going to walk back to his house and then he like reconsiders and then he like get, just gets in his car. Yeah. And it and at the, at first I was like, oh, OK, well, he's like, you know, oh, I've got to get out of here. I got to go do this. But it really almost felt like a in the moment as an actor, I decided it would be better for my character to do this. And so I just did it. <laughs> and And there are a couple of scenes that feel like that with his performance specifically, but you know, other, other pieces too. So it just, it feels very improv and very off the cuff. Like they, they're just kind of getting this stuff as quickly as they can, which could have been part of it. I'm sure the budget was not extreme. I, I, I don't think the budget for this has ever been publicized, but if it was more than a couple million dollars in, in 95, I would be surprised this, this eventually comes to like a final confrontation Daniel can, or Daniel Matt Moore, Mark, convinces him that it is indeed possessed, but they can exercise it as long as it hasn't become a. Oh, what is it called? What is the phenomenon? Uh, um, the hand of glory. Yeah. Like there's there's some like thing. Where he's like, glory. well, yes. as long as it's not turned into this, we're good. And the issue is, of course, it has been turned into that um, because of and, and this was from the King story it had had deadly nightshade from the antacids, right? The antacids had nightshade in it. Um, So then the blood and some other third piece that now have basically rendered exorcism impossible, but they don't know that. Um, Because he like, I think it's after the exorcism, he takes the antacids and he's like, whoa, what are those? Let me have one. And he looks at the ingredients and he's like, oh shit. Oh no. Um, Because there is... This is a movie that has a scene where several characters exercise a laundry machine.
1: And it is, it is so intense. But I, It I, is.
0: I mean, there's so much wind. I mean, so many wind machines going. It's
1: crazy. Lots of, lots of flashing lights. And, and it's, it's supposed to be, I, I, I think it's supposed to be heightened emotion, but you just don't feel it. Like, you can't. They're exercising a laundry machine.
0: Yes, it is. It is a laundry machine. Again, this is where I'm, I'm going to take a moment and I'm going to give Ted Levine props in that he does seem leg- He seems so invested. That's
1: what I love I, like, about him. He, every line, so every scene, he's like, no, I am this character. They paid me to be in this movie. I'm going to be in it and I'm going to be it. Yeah. I mean, he brings he brings as much enthusiasm to roles like this as he did to being Buffalo Bill. And I just I admire the commitment of someone who can do
0: that. So we're we're leading up to this exorcism. And then I, I think I mean, there are a lot of really good scenes in this movie. There are a lot of really good ones. But I think one of my favorites is <laughs> what I imagine was a reshoot. I almost have to think it was a reshoot to try and just nail down all of these occult pieces before they walk in there and start exercising this thing but they just pull over his Jeep Cherokee XJ in the middle of the road. (laughs) And then Mark just gets his little, like, exorcism bag out and tosses it on the hood, and he's just going through all of the things that he has. I've got the holy water. I've got the... (laughs) And Ted Levine is is just pacing on the other side of the vehicle back and forth at this just incredible pace, and he's just like, yeah, yeah, holy water, I got it, you know? It's amazing. It's so off the cuff. It's so great because he's like, yeah, yeah, I got it. And he's like taking his coat off and throwing it in the backseat of the car. He's like
1: ah, god. Like those and two should have been the star of the other two Mangler movies. And then they probably would have been watchable. Then <laughs> they would have been
0: okay. So, I mean, we're coming to a head because um, Gartley and Lin Su, in order to renew the prophecy with the Mangler, have decided to sacrifice his niece, Sherry. She's going to be the newest virginal sacrifice, which I guess is implying that that lady's supposed to be 16.
1: Uh, yeah. She's this 30 obviously 37. <laughs> supposed to be 16. Sure. Sure. Yeah, definitely. She'll be
0: 16. Um, I'm 16. And so they're... <laughs> uh, me too. <laughs> yep, me too. we all are. Yes. Pay no attention to this creepy. We're all
1: whatever age the script says we are.
0: And so they're they're getting ready to sacrifice her. They've just put her on the mangler and the mangler has awoken to accept the new sacrifice. And and they they interrupt and and sort of save her. Lin Su is killed. Uh, Gartley is is, you know, sort of <laughs> I mean, he is just kind of hobbling around. So, I mean, he's yeah, like, not bit much of, that, of a threat. No. And, and I kind of like that. I like that the the sort of main villain is the laundry machine. Like the none of the humans are really that threatening.
1: And it becomes and, even more of a threat.
0: Yeah. Yeah. it does. We're, we're, <laughs> we're getting there, but I love when they're in their little fight and he pushes Gartley down. I mean, and again, Levine is just like, I mean, this is like his apocalypse now. Yeah. I mean, I don't even know how else to say it. Like he is, he has gone fully down the mm-hmm. river to find the general. And, and he's just so intense in this scene. If lest you forget that this is a, a Toby Hooper comedy, he knocks Robert England down, and he straight up does like the Buster Keaton windmilling pratfall yeah. down. Like he's just like,
2: yeah,
1: woo. like, it's, like, like it's, okay. it is comedic. Like that you you
0: don't you
1: don't do that for any other reason than it be funny.
0: Yeah, it's just it's too over the top. Um, so then Lin Sue gets crushed, and Robert England stands up. And again, lest you believe that this is a comedy. Or is not a comedy, he stands up and he does this like his his legs are spread wide, right? Like he's planted, and then he's leaned over because he's like locking his legs in place to stand I don't I don't I can't even describe it. Basically he is just pretzeling himself and it is nothing but hilarious. Yeah. Like there is no other way to look at it. It's just funny. Um and then he like can't believe that Lin Su has been mangled by the mangler. <laughs> So he walks all the way to the back of it just to verify her mangled status.
1: As if there could be some and mistake.
0: <laughs> and we just see another, another pile of, of human remains uh, in a little ball. But that sets up Gartley's death, which the one thing we had not yet seen occur was the, the folding process. Yeah, We'd seen the results save of it, that. But we save never actually save the best for last um so he gets pulled onto the folder that's meant to sort of fold these sheets flat and and he just gets just bent into like little quarters yep (laughs) and one thing that cannot be denied regard whether this is a horror film or a comedy or some weird in between uh it has some really solid practical gore effects yeah um a lot of people like to talk about like Day of the Dead, you know, with the the main, you know, villain guy being ripped in half at the end of a shot that was parodied and and played in many ways even better in Shaun of the Dead years later. You know, people talk about that being a sort of pinnacle practical effect as that guy gets, you know, ripped
1: apart. When will someone pay tribute to the Mangler for I will, folding? I want to see that person.
0: <laughs> um, because it, I mean, it's not that I was. I was craving trying to imagine what a a folded human being would look like. I
1: didn't know I wanted to see this
0: until I saw it. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. I didn't. Toby Hooper knew what I needed before I did. And that was to see Robert England folded into quarters by a giant sheet folding machine. Um, And it is truly horrific. I mean, at this point, he's leaned hard into it. There's red lighting everywhere seemingly apropos of nothing and and just it's it's all sort of emphasized but that red lighting is really key because it actually keeps the flaws in the physical effect yeah. or the practical effect from standing out it sort of brings everything together they drench the whole thing in blood and you just kind of accept it you run with oh this is definitely a mangled body even though it's it's sort of some of the older you know tricks in the book you put robert england on a table put his head through you know the whole nine yards yeah. and and so then they proceed to exercise the Mangler. And. I mean, there are a couple of shots in this where, you know, they're like holding the Bibles and screaming the Lord's Prayer, and it's these super wides um, of the, you know, basically the bulk of the Mangler machine, which now at this point fully looks like a creature. Yeah. Right? It's already starting it's to moving. sort of. It's moving. I mean, it's, It has. Yeah. It has, it has like sentience. a nose and a face. <laughs> it's 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 got a presence. And I mean, a couple of those shots are just fantastic. Like they look really good in a movie that I would say is sort of middling in its visual quality, especially in its outdoor scenes. Like it just it's not lit especially well. Everything's very sweaty. Everything is is just sort of flat. Right. These scenes feel very well planned. Like somebody storyboarded these and knew exactly what they needed to do. Probably because they needed to do some actual uh, compositing to get it all to fit. Like I can't imagine that the the, the set was small enough to film in a single frame. But maybe I, I don't know. But it it just looks really cool. Like it it almost feels like a Renaissance painting, right? Like the the way the the sort of beleaguered stance, the the sort of offensive stance. It's almost like a like a Goya or um,
1: well composed.
0: You know, it's just, it's it's sort of like crazily beautiful, right? Like it just looks cool. Yeah. And, and they're exercising it and there's the flashing lights. And, and, you know, we, we know, we know at this point, based on what we've seen, that this probably isn't going to work, but they're just so committed to the idea and, and they've rescued Sherry. So she started sort of observing all of this as it's happening. And then we shift gears they believe that the machine is dead. Um, Mark looks at the acids, realizes that they have nightshade and that everything that they've done ain't, ain't done shit. And and that, in fact, they probably just made it worse.
1: <laughs> now you've just pissed so them
0: off. <laughs> now it's just angry. Exactly. <laughs> now it's the queen at the end of Aliens and it's just pissed. And so it's going to rip itself off its moorings and it's going to come after you. Uh, which this is from the short story. The ending of the short story is that the Mangler is freed from its moorings, and instead of being a static machine that you could just, I don't know, stay away from, because it seems like it would be difficult to mangle you if you just weren't close by. Yeah,
1: if you just shut down the laundry place, <laughs> then it wouldn't be able to mangle people anymore. It would,
0: it would have, it would severely inhibit its mangling. But potential. the Mangler
1: already thought of that.
0: It did. You know, Stephen King in all of his brilliance was like, well, what if the Mangler could could go? <laughs> what if it could move? And so we get definitely what amounts to the dodgiest effect in this film. And and it is an early computer effect. It's it's computer graphics for sure. Um, but the mangler comes to life and and achieves a kind of sentience. And becomes a kind of demon figure chasing them through these surprisingly large supply hallways of this industrial laundry. Which, I and mean, again, it's
1: this place is hmm. it, it's enormous. I mean, it you is. see it from yes. the outside; it's big, but but wow! And then there's apparently a whole underground complex beneath this laundry place. Right? Uh, Maybe it's there
0: because of the demon stuff. We don't know. We, I suppose we, we're
1: never going to know
0: no um but i i do like this hallway scene it reminded me a little bit of the hallway scene in um in the mouth of madness yes right where like the practical effects are chasing him down the hallway and then like everything is just there's throbbing lights and and flashing so you know it's just like they're doing a lot physically and practically on set to make the effects work better in post, knowing that it's probably going to look a little shitty. So if we can keep it dark and keep the lights kind of coming in and out, you know, you'll read it a little better. And I don't want to make it sound like they give us a full kind of shot of this thing. They really don't. They they hide it for the most part, but they get chased and and there's a lot of like really interesting camera stuff where he's panning. You know, from like Mark's face as he's attempting to continue exercising the demon, then like back to the effect and then back to Mark's face and like this fish island yeah, we get
1: some great wide angle close ups which is just
0: yeah. always fun, I mean, so there's some real kinetic energy to this this sequence that I think is mostly just limited it's mostly just limited by technology, yeah. like it really is like this is. This is mid-1990s cheap special effects, and there's just not a lot that you can do about that, especially now, you know, in retrospect. So they're getting chased. Uh, Mark is killed, unfortunately. Uh, he is attempting that, that to hurt. stand the demon down. That really hurt. And and then they just rip him in half. The the mangler just grabs his chest and rips him in half. And um, again, great practical effect. He's like laying on the ground screaming at Ted Levine. And,
1: who is acting I, appropriately insane in response, just beside himself
0: with grief and terror. It's great. He, it is. Um, And they end up again in this like pit, like this circular, like stared pit going all the way down. And. He is just I don't know, man, he is just like selling it. They end up like jumping down into some water and he is just screaming and wailing I, I really appreciate this because I do think modern horror, one of the, the things that it gets wrong a lot of the times is the level of terror that yeah. you would be experiencing not in this kind of situation. <clears throat> I mean, and I'm not talking about like scream queen type stuff where it's just, you know, the girl who is screaming because the terrible thing is happening. Like the, the legitimate, like on your face, in your expression, your entire body's consumed with terror. Yeah. And I think that Levine is selling that here. And and I think that it amps up what little tension the film is able to generate at this point. And unfortunately, given a lot of the other things that have happened, there's there's still not a ton of tension in this scene. But what it does do is sort of take that tension. And because you see your lead, because you see Ted Levine in such a state, I think it does sort of keep things at a nice level to sort of carry through to the end. Um, Sherry attempts to sacrifice herself. She runs back to the machine. And she's like, just let me kill myself. If I if it takes me, it'll stop or something and she puts her hand in and it gets kind of messed up
1: yeah it takes one of her fingers i guess
0: <clears throat> right and so then we flash to the hospital at the end sherry is is in care levine's waiting to you know get status and then we see the doctor who we'd seen earlier sort of tending to one of the other patients he's also missing a finger and so levine kind of puts it together that he this doctor too is. it's
1: everyone he, it's everyone in the
0: town everyone in the town has paid their little piece to get their success right and how much you're willing to pay determines how much success you're willing to get so i guess a finger gets you to be a a A doctor decently successful doctor
1: instead of going to medical school you just give up a finger
0: just give up a finger and everything's good you learn all about human anatomy in a very real way it's it's very decent money
1: you, pl- you have plenty of patience because the Mangler is always upset.
0: <laughs> the mangler's is always sending people, so it's, it's really good. It's a good gig. But, but then, as we discussed earlier, we get a sort of fairly typical Toby Hooper bummer ending. <laughs>
2: um,
0: but I do want to point out one thing. So Levine, as Levine is leaving the hospital, oh, oh, the other thing, I had this written down in my notes and I forgot. I love, because this film, again, shot for very little, I'm guessing so they're shooting wherever they can and to establish location someone in the production decided that all that what they would need to do is have an array of white signs with black text on them that they can post onto buildings that do not fit the building that they're trying to make us believe it is so the entrance that ted levine walks out of that is definitely not a hospital to make sure that you remember that it's a hospital they just put this big white sign next to the door that says visiting Visiting hours hours. (laughs) (laughs) and that is everywhere all over the movie just white signs (laughs) on walls that say visiting hours or newspaper (laughs) or whatever so that you know oh this is a newspaper place it's it's so adorable i mean it's it's the kind of thing that you would expect to see in like a college short film, where they're just shooting the whole thing in the dorm because that's the only place they have access to. So they just hang a sign on a random wall. Yeah. It's like, I mean,
1: police. I used to do that when I made short films with my VHS
0: camcorder. It's that's totally what I would it. Oh my god, I It's can be Toby Hooper. It's, it's adorable. It's just adorable. <laughs> I love it. But so as he walks out of the definitely hospital. There's an orderly outside raising the American flag. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's Toby over being like, this is how we get commerce, kids. This is capitalism. <laughs> um, but he's raising the American flag. Levine flings the doors open, like just kicks it. Like, I mean, he doesn't kick them, but it's like he just pops them open. I think he actually broke one of the doors in that scene. I've, I've watched it six or seven times now. And one of the doors doesn't close again <laughs> as he pops them open, and you hear it just go, wow. And then, like, the door on the right side, like the, the frame right side, just doesn't close. It just stays open. I <laughs> think <laughs> he legitimately broke it in that shot. Um, it's just so fun. I love it. That's man. how you know they That's didn't do those...
1: additional takes. It's just, well, we right. got it. Plus, the door's no broken. So, takes. we're not going to redo that scene.
0: <laughs> door's broken. I hope you sold it, Dad.
1: That was the only hospital in town. See the visiting That's, hours are posted so clearly.
0: <laughs> and so he he goes home for a night of rest, goes back and goes back to the laundry it, presumably to to give he's trying to give like flowers to Sherry or yeah, something. like
1: check up on her.
0: Yeah, I, I I hope that it's not like romantic intentions. I don't, doesn't I don't think doesn't it feel was. that way. Yeah. And but when he arrives Everything is working again. The mangler is back in place. The women are working in the laundry again. And Sherry, who he had thought that he rescued from the curse of the mangler, is now... Running the show. Basically, she's run- she's in charge. She is the new Gartley. Her finger is gone. Um, she's wearing leg braces and a cane, so she has also allowed herself to be mangled. Um, there's a new foreman, because the other guy died, so there's a new foreman. It's <laughs> just like the old foreman. And no there's, one notices. No one notices there are bloody sheets literally everywhere. Like like the But it's the fine. We do laundry here. The, so we'll clean them. We do laundry. So I mean there's blood everywhere. And Levine just walks out past the sign back into his sweet mid-90s Cherokee XJ. And presumably he drives jeans. the fuck
1: out of that town and
0: never comes back. Exactly. Like he's got flowers for her. I was going to look and try and figure out what kind of flowers they were. I, I imagine that that was a specific choice too. I was thinking maybe they were like the flower that produces nightshade. I don't, I'm not a botanist. I don't know any of that things. I just watch movies and talk <laughs> about them on the internet like a moron. So I don't know anything about flowers, but I imagine that there was some significance to them. Maybe, maybe not. Who knows? But then he just leaves and that's the end of the movie. That yeah. is it, right? There's no success. There is no, no triumph, right? It's just, uh, I survived. Which, to be fair, is how many Stephen King stories end, yeah. right? The the ending of The Mangler is that. They fail, The Mangler gets loose, and it's a whoops.
1: The end. See, you know,
0: <laughs> the end. So it's not like I need my uplifting horror movie ending to, to you know, wrap things up. But it, it in a movie like this that has been so sort of tonally all over the place to end there, you're not going to leave a lot of, you know, sort of your standard movie going audience satisfied. It's just not it's not going to work. So, um what did you think of the the way that the wrangler wraps up or <laughs> folds up?
1: <laughs> oh, that's good. Um I don't know that there's any positive way that you could have ended this movie given the heights that it had to go to and what it had to do to get to the end. <laughs> Um yeah. I'm not sure there was anything that would have been satisfying. I can't think of a way to fix the movie at all. <laughs> like how would you end this the killer laundry <laughs> machine movie?
0: Yeah, um it's the premise is so outrageous. Yeah. Right? And and even for early Stephen King it's outrageous. Again, it's it's typical of King. So you can't say, "Oh, it's just so far gone. It's like, no, I mean, murderous cars, murderous semi trucks. I mean, like,
2: we've <laughs> seen this in Stephen King's.
0: <laughs> what if anything mechanical in the world wasn't to be trusted? <laughs> like, just, you know, I mean, I mean, in, to a certain extent, like, a lot of modern movies prey upon what technologies could kill us, right? Yeah. Um, they just, could your laptop kill you? Can your cell phone kill you? Can your garbage disposal so kill you? You know?
1: And so, right. So ridiculous.
0: And yeah, it's just it's it's a story that even if everything had gone well and it was the best made movie in the world, you I don't know would still sit back and be like, could, what the
1: fuck was that?
0: What is what <laughs> happened here?
2: What is and this it's movie? just
0: and and I, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, at this point, we're, you know, Toby Hooper's plus 20 plus years into his career at this point. It's not like the guy doesn't know how to make a movie. I mean, if you read some of the reviews from the time that people accused him of like, does Toby Hooper even know how to make a movie anymore? And I'm like, no, he does. Right. So I I think, again, in, in this, in my mind, Toby Hooper, at this point in his career, 1995, he's like, people don't get me. They don't understand what I'm trying to do. They don't really get the way that I, the things that I find funny or the things that I find scary, they don't really get them so I'm just going to do what I want. I'm going to do what makes me happy. Like I, this is kind of a film that feels like that. Like, I'm just going to do what I think is right. And, and this may be the last time that he was really able to do that because after this, he doesn't have much, like he doesn't really do much after uh, the mangler. I mean, he's got some television movies. He obviously does some uh, producing stuff. He directs a updated version of the toolbox murders in 2004. Which, you know, is, Toolbox Murder is like classic exploitation film. And so he updates that. So again, he's like trying to go back to the well a little bit, I guess. And you know, it doesn't really go anywhere. Like it's not very good. The original's probably the better one to watch if you're interested in it. Um I, I don't I don't know. Like this is I don't want to say that the mangler is Toby Hooper's last big ride, because it's it's yeah. not technically but I think this is the last time that he wasn't just doing what everybody expected him to do. Yeah, you know, like that's kind of what it feels like. It feels like the last time that he was like, "I'm gonna make the movie that I want to make."
1: Like maybe he read Whereas, this script and was like, "Well, this seems fun. I'll do this."
0: Yeah, yeah. Like I, I, I see some potential here for me to do the things that I like doing. And you know, he hooked up with Ted Levine, which I think again, I. I if you're interested in seeing Toby Hooper at this point in his career, The Mangler is pretty good evidence of kind of the stuff he was interested in making or the stuff that he thought he could make. But I really think the reason to watch this movie, regardless of whether or not you think it's ridiculous, is is Ted Levine. Yeah, like he's, he's really fantastic. good in this. Fantastic. I mean, it's rare that you know. I mean, it's it's a pretty well known fact that as an actor, your performance is really in the hands of your director. You have to trust your director to take these teeny little pieces that you're giving them in these various scenes and then assemble it into like a coherent whole. Like that's the challenge. And oftentimes when, when an actor looks bad in a movie, yes, I mean, it could be a result of their, their own failure, right? You know, if you're watching like the Hannah Montana movie and you think that, you know, the acting sucks, well, sure. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, like she's not an actress, but
1: it's a collaborative process more than
0: anything. Right. And it's not often that you get to see an actor really go to some of these places because oftentimes a director is going to make sure that they're getting, I think it's much easier to sort of go neutral with little highs and lows than it is to go this big. 100% of the time. Yeah. Right. Like Ted Levine is on. Yeah. In basically every scene in this movie. And that just doesn't happen that often. It really does At least not in my experience. Um, you know it just you don't generally see a director let an actor go this big consistently right you'll see it in bursts or you'll see it when like something ekes its way through and that doesn't get caught and then that's the only take they've got or something but like he is just like screaming at the hills for 95 percent of this movie and because that because of that consistency it works it It works really well but it's 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 just a a really un it's a, a really sort of strange and, and somewhat uncompromising approach to building a character in this kind of context. So, I mean, really, for me, the reasons to watch it, reason to watch it is Levine. Same. But it does have, if you are a horror, you know, genre fan, there are some other things. I mean, obviously Robert England, you know, if you want to see him who honestly, unfortunately has not done a ton of work outside of the nightmare on Elm Street movies.
1: He sticks post- to these kind of, over the top horror characters that are not that far in in tone from Freddy Krueger.
0: Yeah, I mean it's it's a comfortable space for him. He has certainly done more. I mean, he would do Wishmaster right after this. Um, you know, Urban Legends. Obviously, he comes back to it for Freddy versus Jason. But I mean, a lot of his career. I mean, especially the back half of his career. I mean, we're talking like zombie strippers and. Yeah. Strippers versus werewolf, like something with strippers. Yeah, I mean, like this is the kind of stuff that he can get and he can do, and and I mean, I am not against any actor going out and getting their payday, right? Like, if if that's how he can live a comfortable life that he wants to live and support his family and put his kids through college or whatever, like, do it, man. Like, I'm Mm -hmm. not gonna disrespect you, but. You know, if if you just want to see him in a role that is Freddie adjacent, but not Freddie, you know, this is something, you know. And it was certainly at the start of when his career was finally able to, you know, begin to fully break away from Nightmare on Elm Street. Although he had done small things. Uh I guess he ended up doing I think they met or I would assume that they met on um, Toby Hooper's Night Terrors. Yeah. Um Cause Robert England, he had like a dual role in that yeah. one. And, um, I, I think that's also cause Daniel Matmore wrote that one. So I think that's where, um, I think that's where he brought him in and then he actually had him come in and act for the mangler. Cause night terrors was like 93, I think. And, uh, it has been decades since I have seen night terrors and it's, it's just, um, it's you know it's got a little Stephen King to it I guess if I remember right you know it's but it's it's another sort of lesser Toby Hooper <laughs> post poltergeist kind of thing yeah. Um there's like a there's like a it's supposed to be related to the Marquis de Sade like there's like, yeah, it's you know it's stuff. another like, over the top thing Yeah I mean you know a lot of folding uh, going on <laughs> But you know, it's it's just one of those things. But I think that's you know, the relationships that he built on that film, the sort of tone that they were going for, Mangler sort of organically grew out of that. But I think of the of a lot of his output of the the you know 90s, I think the Mangler is is one of the most watchable. Yeah, right. That's still not be saying much, yeah, <laughs> but no. it is watchable. <laughs> we're not
1: saying this is a great movie.
0: Um, we're just saying it's a watchable movie. Like you could get through. It's a watchable this. movie. And and if you really are interested in seeing. I don't want to call it a decline because I really don't think that Toby Hooper ever declined as a director. I think people just became less willing to engage with the movies that he wanted to make and the vision that he had for things. It seems like um, this is a,
1: a movie that represents his his refusal to join the crowd. Like, he just won't.
0: Right. He just wouldn't. Like, he just would not kowtow. Um, you know, and I think a similar thing was going on with John Carpenter. Yeah. But carpenter eventually came to it as a i'm just bored with making films i just don't enjoy it anymore and maybe it was part of that hollywood trap right because he too became sort of stuck in making a particular kind of film over and over and over again but i you know whereas hooper i think just i I think he just went dark about it and was like screw it you know i'll do whatever i've got to do to keep my sag card my uh you know director's guild of america card my dga card it's it's honestly really impressive when you can be more
1: nihilistic than john
0: carpenter i know right like it's it's this weird scale (laughs) like because john carpenter doesn't care about anything (laughs) except basketball and weed and like
1: halo (laughs) <laughs> and halo he's
0: re- halo infinite is really good according to john carpenter you guys like he is very into halo infinite <laughs> but but like you know like john carpenter has always been like that bastion of like i don't give a crap but then he's got toby hooper over here being like i don't give a crap and i set that crap on fire <laughs> <Right>? like, <laughs> And it's, you know, it, it's just, it's such a strange, it's such a strange thing. And I think the mangler is this really great little artifact of it. And the other piece of it, why I think watching movies like this is important, even if they're not great or good in, in the traditional sense, is that we are reaching a point as a film industry where films like this are, are just not made. Yeah, Like they just don't exist like uh, horror has always been a place where small films can survive and thrive, which is great. But I mean, can you think of another, you know, sort of popular horror director at the moment who is, let's say fallen from grace, whatever you want to define that as, you know, making a movie like this or being given the chance to even make a movie like this. That's, that's a little bit off center and strange I I just don't see it happening. No. Uh, you know, I guess M Night Shyamalan has done it a little bit, like where he's kind of hit that career low and, and he's made his little that small boomer, movies. Lack
1: of self awareness
0: <laughs> definitely has the lack of self awareness for sure. Um, you know, it, but it's he might be the only person that's been given the chance to continue kind of making these smaller stranger. You know, really, what M Night has done is is he's just. He's just making twilight zone episodes now. Like that's all he's doing. He's just his movies are twilight zone episodes. And and I'm fine with that. I mean, if you do that format well, it's great. I mean, there's a reason why those shows that show has persisted in culture for 60 years. But I I just it doesn't seem like these are the kind of movies the kind of projects that we would ever be able to get off the ground no. in that case. No. And and that's sad to me because every once in a while you get something that has all of this merit underneath the, the sort of overt badness of the thing. Right. And and I think that Mangler falls into that category for me really high. Like I will watch this movie again. I will legitimately enjoyed. I mean, I'm just, as
1: we've been recording, I've had it running and I'm just thinking like, man, this is a fun movie. (laughs) This is a good time.
0: It is. It's just not, it doesn't make sense that a movie that's this kind of dark and violent would be this fun, but it it is. It's just crazy. Um, I, I rolled back because as we were talking earlier, I wanted to watch the, uh, the. You know, I've had it running too, but I wanted to rewatch the refrigerator scenes we were talking. And I mean, there's just so many interesting setups and shots. Like there's almost this. Um, I, I I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why I keep thinking of classical paintings <laughs> while I'm watching this Tobey Uper movie, but I do like there's the that famous that famous um uh painting of Jesus at the money changer tables right yeah. where he's like casting them away right they're like trying to like appeal to him and he's just like oh no and like as all these like adults are coming to Ted Levine for support like tell us what happened and he's he's doing the same thing where he's like trying to walk away from him he's like no and he's just pushing them away and they're all and they're reaching for him and clawing for him and I'm like it's like Renaissance art. Yeah. Like what is happening? And and that's the thing I think that is engaging about Toby Hooper is that at the end of the day, the guy was actually an incredible filmmaker. Yeah. Right. That's that's why I kept thinking about like this George Lucas thing, because not that I think George Lucas is an incredible filmmaker. I don't. I think George Lucas is an incredible documentary filmmaker. He's good mm-hmm. when people are talking and delivering lines directly into camera and then he's intercutting Rupert it with shots shot. of planes. <laughs> That's 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 what he's good at, yeah. but but for Toby Hooper, who I mean, if you read interviews with the guy, like his knowledge of European film, especially in the nineteen seventies and eighties, was unparalleled. Like the dude was a ravenous connoisseur of everything he could get his
1: and hands that's, on. And that's that's why seeing the direction his career took was sad. Like it made me sad.
0: Yeah, uh, totally. I mean, and you know, we've had a lot of talk. Here recently on on our podcast, too, about, you know, the revival of Giallo film, right? You know, with the uh, uh, malignant and, and, you know, all these people trying to, like, have these Giallo film moments, right? These big, you know, Suspiria, and Dario Argento and Mario Bava, you know, these, these big sort of Italian horror cinema moments. But this movie is drenched in that yeah. shit. Like, I mean, the red lighting at the end is 100% Giallo. And Toby Hooper's doing that shit in 1995,
1: and not and not right? doing before it, it was to, cool. Yeah, not doing it to to be a part of some trend. Doing it just because he likes it. He likes yeah making movies like this.
0: Yeah, he's like you know I've seen blacks I've seen Black Sunday or I guess Black Sunday. I've seen that Mario Bob movie. I've seen Suspiria. I've seen you know the other the other films in this genre. Like and and he's just doing it, and it's again i think toby hooper if his career had gone differently if it'd been easier to work with if he had not gotten wrapped up with golan and globus oh my god in the 80s i i really think that he could have he could have done some of the most important recontextualizing of b and european horror for american cinema 20 years before we've gotten around to it, because it, it's now just finally becoming a part of our sort of cultural understanding of what horror is yeah. like just now. And I really think he was pushing for those elements in the 80s. Right. Like, let's make this stuff work. And he just got pushback after pushback after pushback
2: the to world where, wasn't unfortunately, ready.
0: <laughs> they weren't ready. I mean, and and I, you know, again, I don't want to make Toby Hooper like the messiah <laughs> The the misunderstood messiah of horror. He was a great
1: director and kind of wasted on the things that he was pushed into or or found himself part of.
0: Yeah, I, I think wasted is a is a great way to describe it, right? Like he's he's still out there trucking along trying to do what he's doing, but it's not it's falling on deaf ears. Like nobody is paying attention. And the people who are paying attention are just angry because it's not what he gave them before which uh, we've talked about that extensively. That is just a problem with horror fans. Yeah. is like, they just want what they've seen again with slight differences. So that it doesn't feel exactly the same. And, you know, you've got somebody like Toby Hooper. who's like, I don't want to do that. I want to do something unique and they're going to reject it. And I mean, I'm not trying to say that Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 is a good movie. It's not, <laughs> but it's the movie you wanted to make. Yeah. And it still has some elements about it that are really good. So I don't know. It's it's a a weird case, the weird case of Toby Hooper, (laughs) right? Your your newest Hardy Boys mystery. Um, but I I think the Mangler, despite its flaws, its many flaws, is a really sort of fun, goofy horror watch with some great practical effects, legitimately good practical effects. A wonderful performance by Ted Levine, who we honestly, you know, has played. I mean, if you look at his character from Monk, uh, a comedic character for sure but a fairly restrained one and, and one who I, I think if you know him from that, seeing him in this is a nice counterpoint.
1: This would definitely be interesting. Right?
0: If, <laughs> if you, if you grew up watching him as as the police chief on monk and really like enjoying his, his back and forth with his, you know, goofy sub detective that works for him or whatever, like seeing him go to this place may be just a really enjoyable thing for you, like just very fun to watch somebody go that hard. But I, I think just those things alone, I, I think are well make the Mangler well worth somebody's attention. I agree. Now the sequels,
1: you you can skip those.
0: Nope. Um, the Mangler Reborn is something. I I didn't watch the whole thing. I couldn't. I just couldn't. Uh the second one the Mangler Reborn um has Lance Hendrickson in it so if you're a Lance Hendrickson fan you may have seen that it's from his I'll do any horror movie for money period which I do, I think is still going on actually I don't think that <laughs> You period have enough money in Lance Hendrickson's career um which I we talked about this before we started but I I guess it's disingenuous of us to be mad at Bruce Willis for his appear for two days on set and then have everything else be shot from behind with another bald actor and and be upset with that when really like Lance Hendrickson got that game started in the 90s. Yeah. yeah. I mean, plenty so of actors
1: like, I love you know, do
0: that all the time
1: and, right. and more just, power you know, to
0: them. Right. If you're at the position in your career where you can command that kind of, that kind of pay for that.
1: Not everybody has to be work. Daniel
0: Day-Lewis, you know?
1: not everybody right.
0: Not everybody has to go and actually learn how to make shoes so that he can have <laughs> one scene where he makes a shoe in a movie but, but we've got guys like daniel day lewis come
1: back me. daniel day lewis we need you
0: i'm gonna go be a cobbler in italy for a year <laughs> so that in this one scene in this one movie i can successfully demonstrate what it looks like to make a shoe yeah <laughs> And, and that's where you go like, well, but Daniel, you know that we can just have like a scene of you at a work table from behind and then we can just have another person's hands making the shoes. It's it's really not that bad. It's fairly, fairly easy to do, actually. Um, but that's 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 right. You can't truly be it unless you've lived it. And for Ted Levine, you can't truly be maligned police detective John Hunton unless you've been police detective John. <laughs> and he lives that character in this film top to bottom. Um so the mangler any final thoughts? Uh I, I think based on our, rec- our our discussion here and and rewatching this a few times over the last couple of weeks to to prep I I really like this movie. I shouldn't. There's yeah. really a lot of, a lot not a lot of objective reasons to say this is really good. Um but I think as a horror fan as a fan of the horror genre, I was completely unaware of this. Like I had zero context for it. Coming into it after your recommendation and watching it, I I think it has a lot of fun merit to it, and is well worth you know adding to your visual lexicon of horror if you if you want to, um, or if it sounds va- even vaguely interesting. I think it's it's a pretty solid watch. Uh, I guess the difficulty at this point will be just getting a hold of a copy.
1: Yeah, and I, and I I feel the same way. I we watched it. Well, we watched it because there is an actual mangler in our basement laundry room. There's a mangle downstairs. And in the Even process better. of telling me about it, this movie came up. Um so I just found it delightful. Like not good. <laughs> I don't won't say it's a good movie. Yeah, no. But it's delightful. I had a great time watching it.
0: And, you know, at the end of the day, that's really what matters. Yeah.
1: Right? Did you to have enjoy. fun? And I did. It, it
0: kind <clears> of <throat> yeah. It's it's a lot of fun. And, and at the end of the day, I think Toby Hooper also always got that, is that horror for all of its scares and all of its, you know, terrifying moments. Still should be It's supposed good. to be fun. Yeah, it should be it's supposed time. to be a good time. Like the experience of that fear should not leave you paralyzed. It should leave you invigorated. Yeah. Right. And the types of movies that to- uh, Toby Hooper made, I think that was always in the background, right? There is an invigorating quality to being scared. And I don't think he ever wanted an audience to leave one of his films Not necessarily not feeling bad. I mean, that's, that's part of it, but to leave exhilarated and the Mangler has some moments that do that, some really good ones. So certainly a recommend from, from us, I think it's, it's well worth digging up and spending some time with, especially if you've never seen it or, you know, you're just not really familiar with Toby Hooper's you know sort of latter half of his career um you know it, it, if all you've seen is poltergeist and texas chainsaw you know there was another side to the guy and an interesting side um i would throw invaders from mars in there too because i think that holds up fairly well i watched that not too long ago and it's i think it's gotten a couple of decent blu-ray releases uh, at least one but uh it's again these are not good movies I the let me be clear. This is not good, right? This is not like a overlooked gym. It's not a great movie, but it's a movie that has some really interesting things running behind the scenes and some interesting stuff happening in performance that I think make it enough to, to invest that hundred and six minutes yeah. to get through it. And it's, it's, it's very good. I agree. All right. Well, uh, I guess we will wrap up for this week. So if anybody wants to find you on social media to, share about their mangler in their own basement um that they found when when their their you know grandma gave it to them as a wedding gift please
1: please um, tell me all of your mima <laughs> in the mangler stories uh i am <laughs> i am mangler
0: i am, mangler.
1: <laughs> I am on twitter <clears throat> at
0: baskinator uh, and you can get me at baskin if you want to share your thoughts on the mangler with me um or you can get us together at f peace theater on twitter and you can of course, email us at failurepeace at gmail.com. All right. Well, we will be back next week to discuss yet another film from the disastrous side of Hollywood, the part of this Hollywood sign behind the part where they just don't want to talk about that.
1: Right, right, right next to the pay sign pay that says that visiting part. hours.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's right. The big white sign next to the Hollywood sign that says visiting hours <laughs> and then has them listed because that's going to tell you that you're actually in Hollywood <laughs> at that time. But uh, we will be back next week for another discussion, and we will see you then.
2: Bye-bye.